0: Make, bring notes no sometimes you remember things boom and we're live sometimes like you i, I have to remember things uh. But, uh, like if there's a thought that popped in my head or something i just forgot i, I need to write things down too many ideas just slip away yeah
1: they slip yeah. away but one thing you said a while ago which i've tried to start using it the voice memos on my phone and I'm not very good at it. You say you record straight oh, into yeah, your phone it's really all good. the time. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I'm, I'm trying to make it fun. I've got like an old school Elvis microphone and like a 1950s style cord into an old recorder. And I'm trying to use that a bit more because we were talking about Hunter S. Thompson. I like the idea mm-hmm. of recording stuff as I'm moving, <laughs> but it's it's a habit I'm not getting into right now.
0: Well, I think recording anything, like when you have an idea, that you go, God damn it. This is a good idea. Like, grab it mm grab it. I, I think as it. Neil Brennan said it best that he looks at his notebook like a net for catching ideas I like that. I love that. Why am I always driving though? I'm always, always driving always Cuz I think when you're in the zone like you're driving There's something about like you, you know how sometimes you could be like miles away and you're like how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> like you're sober. Yeah, that's and you're terrifying. driving and you're like, how did I drive miles? I I, I evidently changed lanes <laughs> I, you know, I know where I'm going. Everything was inside the lanes, but I was, I'm barely there. Mm -hmm. What is that? I don't know. You get in the zone because you're so accustomed to doing it, and you're tuning into everybody around you. And sometimes you're probably a better driver when you're doing that because you're not being conscious; you're just 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 being aware and just being in the moment, mm-hmm.
1: feeling the road. Yes, being present. It's very nice. But my best ideas come then, and yes. I have no way to record them.
0: But I think it's because you're in that weird mind state. A lot of people also get the same thing when they walk. Um, a lot of writers, what they like to do is they like to write. And then they like to go on walks and think about the writing. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that when you're on the walk, you just get, you know, left, right, left, getting a little bit of cardio in, going up hills. And you, all you're thinking about is you're, you're like breathing and you're moving. And those eyes just sort of bounce around the back of your head and get washed. Yeah. Like they're in a washing machine. Like mm-hmm. what, what's in
1: there? Like a filtration yeah. system, just kind of shaking them through. Yeah, because you're not running doing well. anything
0: else other than walking, right? Uh-huh. So you're just walking and the ideas are just bouncing around in there. Yeah.
1: Or running. Yeah. Same thing again. You must find that. Yes. An idea pops in my head and I'm like, I'm definitely going to be remembering this. Yeah. And next thing I'm into, balls to the wall. And, dah, dah, and it's, it's going,
0: gone. It's gone. gone it's gone forever. Away. Yeah. Mitch Hedberg had a funny joke about that it, he keeps a note by his, a notepad by his bed because uh, every now and then like he'll have some sort of an idea that he needs to write down. Or if you don't have a notepad, I have to pretend that it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. It. I did a terrible job paraphrasing. <laughs> I couldn't remember exactly how it was worded but it's like yeah that thing like ideas are strange man I I entertained for a while the idea that ideas were life forms that because uh, we don't think of them like look there's a lot of different life forms right I mean there's squids and there's chimps and there's barracudas and there's hawks there's a lot of different life forms there's insects I mean there's a lot of different ones Mm. what if that's what ideas were and that what they're doing is just making their way and the more you nourish them, the more they grow, the more you pay attention to them, the more they, they propagate your, uh, your head with new ideas and, and then you take action on those ideas and it creates everything the world's ever seen that humans have created. All that stuff comes from ideas, everything from cars to buildings to planes, all that comes from ideas, 100% of it, but yet we don't even think about what the ideas are. Like, what the fuck is that? You just get some random new way of looking at things. What is happening? Is this just pure calculation? Or are you interacting with some sneaky little influencer that wants to give you credit for it? Hmm. Like, God, Dan Hardy, you're so smart with these ideas. You should, you know what you should do? You should build that building. (laughs) And then you're like, I'm going to build this fucking building. All right, Hardy, right on the side of it, god damn it. And you do it all in gold. Like, where is that coming from? We go, oh, the ego. Oh, you know, men and the toxic masculinity and their desire for building things. Maybe, or maybe ideas made that dude build that thing. Maybe. Maybe ideas were so clever the way they got you and talked to you like a siren pulling you into the rocks. Come on, Dan Hardy. <laughs> build that fucking building. And I'm you go and it. do
1: it. I'm into it. Are you a su- subscriber to the idea that ideas are collective? So when you have an idea, s- that, uh, that idea is available to other people in the world if they're tuned in to be able to collect that idea.
0: I think it's entirely possible that a lot of people are thinking exactly the same way you think when you're thinking it. Mm. I think that there's a lot of fucking people thinking right now. And there's a lot of sharing information through podcasts and, and Twitter and Facebook and you know, YouTube videos and all the different things that people are doing. And it, it's not outside the realm of possibility that we share some sort of common thread psychically. You know, that there's some connection that we have with each other. We know we like to be around each other, right? Like, logically, I'm not talking woo-woo. People like to be around each other. When you hear someone talk about, oh, I'm just alone or I want to be by myself, like, that's a fucked up person. Like, <laughs> most people, I mean, not for a little bit of time, for a reset, miss your friends. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a good idea. It's probably really healthy. But like those people that, like, them Ted Kaczynski-type dudes who just want to just – Move to the middle of nowhere and by themselves and be a fucking nomad. Like, hmm, why? Yeah. most of us don't want that. Most of us want to be around each other. Well, how come? Well, we feel good. It's like a little drug. We feel good around our friends and our loved ones. We could f- we feel good. Like, there's something happening here. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's yeah. an exchange of information.
1: Yeah, but I, I have to manage that because I, it, it exhausts me. You know what I mean? You you did two of the the podcasts that you've done with Henry Rollins that I've listened to have just blown my mind. He's awesome, and there are so many things that he says that that's—he's my spirit animal. I think there's a voice inside my head that is Henry Rollins, and some of the things (laughs) he says, it just resonates with me. And the idea of being around people a lot of the time is just. Exhausting. Mm. I like to be able to pull away, and that's when I feel I'm at my best. For like four hours a day, I can give like a lot of energy.
0: Yeah, no, you definitely need a balance of it, but you don't want to be completely absent of it. What it is is it's some in some way or another we feed off of each other, good and bad, right? And good people, people that you enjoy being around, you feed off them in a very positive way, and it's very fulfilling and addicting, and you want to do what they do, and you want to help each other, and you all want to like feed off of each other. You all want to have it's a powerful community where you love each other. And then there's people that are super negative too. You know, and you if you, it's all about what kind of what what kind of circles do you travel in? If you get fucked over as a child and you just get tossed into a bad circle really early on. That's one of the primary causes for life sucking, right? You're a kid and you're born in a shit situation with abusive people, abusive neighborhood, Danger, crime,
1: fuck, man. Mm. Right from the jump, just fucked over. Changes your perspective for life. Changes the way that you interact with people all the way through your life. Yeah. Because of, you know, yeah, those early beliefs.
0: It's crazy that so little is done to stop that. So little is done to mitigate that in terms of, like, how much effort is put into trying to ensure that people are educated or, or, or... Somehow or another, we it, there's no real way to explain to someone what it's like to be a parent until you're a parent. Yeah, you could talk about it till you're blue in the face, but if you're talking to crazy people, you, you're never going to know how good they are at it anyway. Like, how, like if you take someone who's like a crazy abusive person, what words could you ever say to that person to stop them from being crazy or abusive? Are there is there a string of words that you can say where you could convey the way you feel about it? in a way that would cause them to go, wow, I should probably stop being a piece of shit.
1: I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, it's zero to six, isn't it? It's those first six years is when you, you know, when you develop patterns that influence you for the rest of your life. It's yeah. like the programming that's embedded in you. And, yeah. and like from that point on, all of the decisions you make, all of the relationships you develop, they're put through that filtration system of those first, three, first six years of your life. Yeah. And... I mean, this is where psychedelics have, have, have helped me, be, you know, be able to go back and, like, unpack some of that stuff and try and figure out what influenced me. And, and like, you know, memories that you, like, you bury down that you don't, you don't remember for the rest of your life, they'll, they'll influence decision-making all the way through your life. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, like those – and there's little memories that – little, little pit stops. Like, they, 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 they exist – no matter what you do you would be in the middle of doing something you go back to some weird regret you yeah. have when you're 18 you go
1: ugh <laughs> what are you doing there <laughs> do you have, do you ever have those moments now though where you there's a moment where you stop and you think that that was a significant moment like i've just experienced a significant moment in my life that is now going to change the way that i think moving forward like you must have a lot of those with conversations that you have
0: yeah sometimes in the conversations yeah um but i feel like if you if if you think like that like it's nice to think like that for a second, to like take that in. Wow, that's pretty cool. But ultimately, it doesn't do you any good. It's like recognizing that you're in, in this a uh, crazy moment. It's like, you, in many ways, it's like paralysis by analysis. Like, you're like, oh my god, this is happening, and then you're just talking about it happening, but now it's not happening anymore because now you're just talking, and now you've fallen into this. You know, and it's, it's past. Yeah, you missed the moment you got to appreciate it. Talk, talk it through so you all you all get it. Whatever it was, whatever cool thing it was. But yeah, um, in terms of like the number of events that you see in your life that shape you and and impact you in a way that make you reassess where you're at, like as a person, like and what life is like. Those uh, those are so critical. And if you don't have those, if you just have like this flat plane of nothing happening, going to the same job, I think that's what makes people fucking go crazy. Mm. M- more than almost any other aspect of this life. It's just monotony and boredom and no, no thrills and no challenges and nothing makes you scared.
1: Yeah. I- and I think... It's difficult to see that when you're in it, though, right? I yeah. think you know. I think we're both fortunate enough to be in a place. And I was, I was with a good friend yesterday, Tim Hendricks, getting tattooed, and we were having the same the same conversation. He's in a place where he's he's in control of his life. You know, he's living in, in the place that he wants to live. He said he can walk his kids to school for the next ten years. You know, he's he works in the, the tattoo studio that he got his first professional tattoo in. Like he's living his dream, and he's got all these businesses that support what he's doing. And uh, we're we're in a, a similar situation as well, and. I can see other people around me now that are caught in that monotony and they, they can't see it. And they, it's just it, it's so difficult to break that. Do you know what I mean? It's-, uh,
0: it's so difficult. It's so easy to talk about once you broke through it. That's why concepts like The Secret are such horseshit. <laughs> just because you made it doesn't mean you, like your mind make, made yeah. you make it. Like there's a lot of variables, man. Like to say that you have your finger on the pulse of all the variables... That we're in charge of making you successful. That's so silly. Mm. Right?
1: You could be a life coach. What do you think about life coaches? They freak me out. How, how can someone coach your life? Uh, that, well, it depended upon how much personal experience they've had. That's the problem. Yeah. Mm. Dep- that's completely dependent upon. See, I'd want someone ancient if I was looking for a life coach. <laughs> I'd want someone that was like, like yeah, at least 90. At least 90. Right.
0: Yeah, someone with like a war torn past and wrote Look, yeah. poetry and yeah, climbed mountains and Six killed or sharks. Seven different lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's just most people that are doing that. This is no disrespect because I think that some of them actually provide some legitimate fuel. Um, they give people some words that could encourage them. And even though they've never really accomplished anything, they're not necessarily doing anything negative because they're propagating good ideas. They're, they're promoting healthy values and healthy ways to live life. But let's be honest, bitch, you ain't done shit. (laughs) Like it's weird. It's weird to be given advice when you ain't done shit. Mm. And some people have done things. Some people are legitimate, you know, some people, uh, like Jocko Willink, you know, when that guy's giving motivational advice, you know who he is, you know what he's accomplished as a as a Navy SEAL, as a martial artist. He's uh he's a he's the real deal. And when he talks to people and talks about discipline and, you know, establishing a core relationship between your squad and all the people you work with, like he's you really believe it, you mm-hmm. buy it. It's why David Goggins works. You know that fucking savage is out there running right now. <laughs> while, while we're talking, he's running down the street. Do some people want to keep you soft? He's running down the street making YouTube videos. He'll be out there for fucking five hours today just running.
1: He's an animal. Dude, I'll I tell you, I'll be honest, though. I was in Uruguay at the weekend, and like jet lag took me out. It, it killed me. I don't know why. Normally, I'm pretty good. I fast on the planes. I don't eat anything when I'm in the air. That's supposed to be you know? a good trick, Yeah, right? it works really well. I started using it towards the end of my career. It's it, something about your circadian cycle and, mm. you know, you have breakfast in the, the time, time zone that you're leaving and then when you arrive in the next place, you have breakfast at that same time and mm. it kind of kicks you over. And it, and it works. But for some reason, this time it killed me. And I'm, lay, I'm laying in bed and it's freezing cold. South America, I just assumed it was going to be warm. It was not warm. It was, it's the southernmost capital city in, in South America. Oh, Jesus. It was freezing cold. How cold? I don't know. I don't, I don't do temperatures. It was cold. <laughs> my fo- my fo- My face burned when I stepped outside. <laughs> Jesus
0: Christ. It was cold. So like
1: zero, like zero degrees? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a pussy, but it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> but, but So I decided, I mean, you know, when there's a coastline there, I always try and make the most of it because I live in the city center. I live in the Midlands. Like I'm like, you know, I'm nowhere near a coast. Right. So when I'm near a coast, I want to make the most of it. But I had no warm training clothes. So I'm out there running and the reason i was out there running and my lungs felt like they were bleeding was because you put a, a, a instagram mess, a instagram post up saying something about not being lazy and it just it got me str- i was like i picked it up it was the first post that came up on instagram i was still laying in bed and i was like i'm gonna see joe next week i've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've got to be i've got to be inspired in this moment so thank I, you i well my pleasure i'm, I'm very
0: thankful for you And I'm thankful for all those people that there's legitimate people that make posts like that, that are fuel, Mm -hmm. they're mental fuel. You know, like when Goggins makes a post or when Jocko makes a post or my friend Cam Haynes makes a post, I read those posts and I fucking want to get going. I want to get going because I know they're getting after it. Yeah. It's it sounds so like for people who are not into exercise, for people who think that we're macho assholes, this is like an excellent place where you would criticize, like, God, it's so cliche. What are you gonna go get after it? I'm telling you, there is great value spiritually in doing something hard. For there sure. is. There's yeah. something about it. It makes it makes you a better person. Sounds ridiculous, but all my favorite people can fucking push themselves. Yeah. All my favorite people work out hard. Yeah. Because when they do it, it breaks down bullshit better than anything else you can do. It just breaks down bullshit. You know who you are when you're done. Mm. You know when you bitched out. You know when you've started coasting the last 30 seconds of a round. You know, you know all that, man. You can't lie to yourself. Yeah, It's the grand exposure of who you are, and it only comes during like extreme duress. It only comes when you're doing something that's hard as fuck, whether it's rolling jujitsu or running hills or doing yoga. It comes in those moments where you want to fucking quit
1: yeah it's been a while since i've been in california and i was actually reminiscing on some of those late night legends sessions back those in the day great, Do you remember man. those days yes
0: those were great uh,
1: i even took a drive past the place and i just I mean, it's empty there's nothing <sighs> there now but I, I took a drive past it and i remember like we were in there till like 10 30 11 o'clock at night All the, the the time. The windows steamed up and yeah they were good nights just that grind i'm trying to bring that back because i've just opened my own gym uh at hardy Warhead. it's that's my dream. I've gone to the place. Nice. Where at? Um, it's in the Midlands, in Colville, near Leicestershire. Like Do you have a website that people can get yep, to? hardywalletmma.co.uk You Spell all that out because you got oh, an English shit. accent, bro. <laughs> uh, H-A-R-D-Y-W-A-L-L-H-E-A-D, uh, uh, MMA.co.uk. So you two guys teamed yeah, up myself together. and Jimmy wallet Nice. My, my longtime friend, training partner. So we've opened Yeah, he's team. a
0: famous UK MMA fighter. He's
1: a... St- <laughs> he's a thug he's a beast he's, he's beautiful
0: yeah so that's great man that's that's those old legend days man th- It's one of those places where i'll drive by i get nostalgic i'm like God, right. man we had fun in that place yeah crazy wars it was uh just such a great place to train and such a great environment a great gym they set it up perfectly it was mm-hmm. such a bummer when that went away i was yeah, like was. oh
1: they were good nights yeah, yeah man my, my joy still clicks from your side control pressure <laughs> I, everyone always asks me, like, "What? So what? What's Joe's uh, What's Joe's grappling like? Is it like loads of tenth planet stuff?" I'm like, "Not really. No, he's like, fucking irons people out into the canvas with his with his shoulders and he's, he, like people don't get you strong top game." And I always think back to it. Like, Sorry, dude, I got a clicky your... jaw. That's not for me. Well, man. no, it's, no, that was from Vitor like Belfort that fight. That was from Vitor. Yeah, that. You got vitor Yeah, Vitor. Was...
0: You sparred with Vitor.
1: Yeah, quite a bit. I've sparred Why didn't with vitor.
0: you call me? Wait, call me before you think about <laughs> doing something like that <laughs> i was saying are oh, you fucking cr- let me play you a highlight reel get yeah. the fuck away from that guy hit me up fuck. oh of course he did yeah. he's terrifying
1: yeah I when was this that was uh extreme couture so when i was living Jesus here i used Christ. to drive out to uh um i used to stay at sean Tompkins' house was he fighting 205 then or 85 oh this was uh he was fighting in affliction i was i was helping him train for the was it oh. terry Martin? He fought in affliction no was it yes affliction. it was i think i think it was he only had one
0: fight in affliction right mm. and Then affliction went yeah. under yeah. dude affliction had some wild shit they did they fedor a lot when he, of money he, at that when uh, fedor fought tim Sylvia, uh-huh. holy shit yeah holy shit that was wild when fedor knocked out Orlovsky, holy
1: shit Beautiful. Both, both those are affliction fights they were they were yeah they were good cards But it was, yeah, it was Extreme Couture, and it was in the boxing ring that was right in the door. And it was fight week, so there were fans in the gym, people taking photos, and we were on the elevator platform. It's Vitor Belfort with some dude that no one's ever seen that's got a mohawk. So everyone's like, this guy's going to get fucked up by Vitor Belfort. So everyone's watching. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like moving. I'm like trying to stay away from him, using my footwork and my jab. And like, he was just trying to march me down. And I caught him with a couple of of jabs and a, a cheeky left hook. And he stepped in and blasted me with this clean uppercut. Woo. I was eating soup for a week.
0: Yeah, man. Don't do that. Yeah. He was so fast. He's ridiculously fast. Yeah. You don't need that in your life. Not anymore. <laughs> He's <laughs> Not too anymore. big, too. Yeah, Vitor is big and fast. He was like the first guy that burst onto the scene that had like real boxing, hand-speeding mm-hmm. combinations. Remember when he fought Trey Teligman and people yeah. thought he was a jiu-jitsu guy? Because he was only 19. But he came out with his hands wrapped with mma gloves on and was throwing ridiculously shoes, right? yep wrestling so he, shoes he was sprinting yep. he had wrestling shoes when he fought vanderley too mm.
1: you know that's for, why he took off so quickly yeah holy shit but
0: you know what's really interesting about vitor is people think of him as a kicker but he really didn't start kicking until later in his career you know it's it's kind of crazy when you think that he knocked out dan henderson with a kick luke rockhold with a kick michael bisping with a kick he knocked these guys out with head kicks. Mm. Spinning and, kicks. Yeah, well, some of them, yeah. But he with uh, Bisping was just a lead uh,
1: round kick, yeah. right? Wasn't it a left round kick? Yeah, the rock hard one was yes. a spinning kick.
0: Yes, wheel kick, Precision. man. The second wheel kick probably ever threw in a fight.
1: And turned straight back to stance yep. as well. Didn't spin all the way through. Dude,
0: he's a fucking serious mm. athlete, man. That's like the kind of t- kicking technique that you would get if you were a, a black belt at Taekwondo in your teens. You know right. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. For him to pick that up deep into his 30s, because he never threw kicks like that, yeah, right? No. He would throw, he would throw crazy hands, and mostly he would throw like some low kicks or things like that. But he started throwing wild head kicks and shit. And it, I think, also it, something might have had to do with the fact that he broke his hands many times, like many, many times. Like I think he had something like seven or
1: eight hand operations. Really? Oh yeah. No,
0: something I've never had a problem with. Crazy. You Got lucky, man. You got good I think hand structure
1: i think it's because because I, I was i put a, um, a video up the other day of me hitting the uh, the maze bag with no gloves on mm-hmm. and i do that quite a bit and i've always done it and i think for the first sort of you know five years of my training everything we did was was no gloves you must have done the mm-hmm. same thing with taekwondo right yeah and like i always think now boxers go straight into a gym and they wrap their hands before they do anything so they never get that structure of their hands mm. you know what i mean
0: I think there definitely is some benefit to doing some hand strengthening for sure. There's no detraction I and mean, it's no detriment doing it. It's got to be good for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're doing something where you're – that's your weapon. It's two yeah. of your biggest weapons, the ones that land the most, are these two hands. And if you could make them more strong, it only makes sense that that would be good. Mm-hmm. Make them, and also if you made them more muscular, right? if you just did a lot of – you would actually make them heavier. You know, like you really, not much, you know, like how much more meat do you got in your hands if you have like a thick hand versus a thin hand? Yeah, It's probably like a couple ounces. I've got
1: quite small hands. And crooked thumbs as well. That's the
0: other thing. If you punch as hard as Vitor, you better have some fucking George Foreman hands to go with that speed and power. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe that's like, there's a lot of great boxers, even with those big gloves. Like Floyd Mayweather broke his hands multiple times. Yeah. just hit people really hard. Hit them hard. On the forehead, your fucking hand breaks.
1: Yeah. What about um, Chris Lieben? He never broke his hands, Dude, did he? guy's made out of metal. Exactly. That's He's what I'm made thinking. out of metal. Like, if you could take his hands off and put them on Vito Belfort, that's uh, a lethal weapon.
0: He fires bombs at people, bare knuckle. Mm. It's it's crazy to see him. Did you see his last fight, though, against Dakota Cochrane? We got this giant um, gash in his forehead. Ugh. One of the worst cuts I've ever seen. I didn't. Makes me rethink my support of because uh, I was saying that MMA should be bare knuckle. I remember we had this conversation yeah.
1: like in the back in the Middle East a long time ago. When yeah, we, was I've been having
0: like, that same repetitive conversation
1: forever. Yeah, like, because
0: it doesn't make sense to me that we have this unrealistic uh, advantage of having your wrist wrapped and having knuckle protections on. Like it seems like, why can't I, how come someone can elbow you in the face, but they can't hit you with a bare knuckle? They can mm. shin you in the face. Like, think about as hard as some people kick and then shinning you in the face, like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, But then you got to think, I mean, what
1: MMA would look like if we took the gloves off?
0: we would look like a real fight. Mm. It I mean, would. Th- this, the thing it is, would. like, the gloves, it doesn't help anyone other than the person who's throwing their punches because it protects your hand. But, but it may, gives you an unrealistic expectation of what you could do with your hands because they're all padded up. Yeah.
1: But I, I still think people, you know, the people that are fighting bare knuckle right now have got an unrealistic perspective of, of, of what boxing is with no gloves. Mm. Like if you look back to the, any of the old photos or drawings of the old bare knuckle boxers, their stance was so much different. They yeah. leaned back, their knuckles were curled in, and they were hitting with the front two knuckles with a back fist – like I think if, if bare knuckle boxing had started around you know around the same time as the UFC uh, started, it would develop and it would look very different right now. Like everybody's standing like boxers, like mm-hmm. they've got 14 ounce gloves on when they're sparring, and they're throwing punches like they've got to, like they've got gloves on. There's no, you know, they've not yeah. made that adjustment yet to lean back and start using that lead hand better.
0: So do you think that you're going to see that and these bare knuckle boxing guys they're going to develop like that old timey style? Mm-hmm. I and start so. jabbing with those strong, for, for folks who don't know, the, the strong two knuckles are the ones that are right next to your, your index finger and your fuck you finger. Those are, uh, those are the two strong ones. And if you look at my friend John Lee, who is a national taekwondo champion and one of my mentors, taught me a lot when I was uh, in Boston. He used to punch bricks so often that he didn't have two knuckles. He had one solid knuckle. It was so crazy. It was this, on his right hand, it was like what a knuckle, where a knuckle would be and another knuckle would be. All of it was covered by this like thick callus. Have you ever seen like when dudes have, have those knuckles from breaking I, boards and bricks and shit?
1: I've seen I've seen the callous knuckles, but I've never seen one one combined. James, see pill. if you can find a photo of this because it's. I've seen it
0: on other martial artists before, but y- you have to be one hardcore motherfucker to mm. turn your hand into a hammer. Dude, one of my party
1: chin. Uh, my, one of my party tricks is my shins, though. Oh really? Because I've got conditioned shins from tire boxing.
0: There's still like none of the nerves have come back.
1: No, that's amazing. No and they're like it's it all calcified and yeah, shit. It sounds, yeah it sounds like the table but it's like like the the bone collapses down on itself mm-hmm. and then you get like this thick chunk of bone right at the front of the of the, sh- of the shin
0: so it's a different kind of bone like a calcified kind of, bone yeah
1: the way it was explained to me is that the if you if you t- take a cross-section of the bone it looks like ladders stacked up next to each other and what you do is you collapse the rungs on the fr- front set of ladders and that collapses down itself. And those two pieces calcify and then that becomes a thicker outer wall. And then you do the same thing. Whoa. So you, you collapse the, like we used to do bottles and drawing, uh, rolling pins and all kinds of stuff to like try and condition the shins. Like, What's
0: the just, best way?
1: Because everybody bag. has a,
0: diff- that's what I heard. Heavy bag, yeah. all day. They have. I've
1: got a big old sandy heavy bag in my Ooh. gym, and I just kick that all day.
0: Kevin Ross said he would make me one. He's going to make me a sand one mm. that you just kick with your shins. Nice. Yeah, that he, that's Sounds what he told bruising. me he does.
1: I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. you got to put some rags in there with the sand just to give it a bit of movement. No,
0: not if Kevin Ross <laughs> is going to install it. I'm going to take it like a man. <laughs> I'm going to just fuck my shins up. It's um it, The same thing apparently is the process that happens with cauliflower ear. Is uh, calcification because mm. when you get internal bleeding, as it's been explained to me. Remember, I am a moron, and I'm definitely not a doctor. But it was explained <laughs> to me that when you have blood inside the tissue, that that blood can calcify, and that's why your your ears, when they get cauliflower, they're so fucking hard. It's because mm. literally, it's like a rock in there. Damn! I used to yeah. just get
1: it out. I used to stuff some insulin needles. For Good my, for my you, diabetic. Good friend for of you. you. And I just
0: yeah, good for you. There's a lot of people that want that that nonsense with their ears. <laughs> listen, no, it, listen. No disrespect to people who have it, because many of them are my heroes. You know, because it's it's part of the game for jujitsu. But if you have the option right now, not if you already have the cauliflower. God bless. But if you got the option right now, you really should drain your fucking ear because that that's how the reason why your ear hears a certain way. Like all that like sound comes through there, you can hear it. I have like. Little tiny pieces, chunks of mm. little hard stuff. You know, places where I had like a little bit of cauliflower but I always wore ear guards. Yeah. Like, yeah, you did. You always had Yeah, fuck song. you, man. I'm, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to hear. <laughs> you guys are crazy. <laughs> Baron <and laughs> boxing legend Big Joe Joyce dipped hands in petrol ahead of brutal, brutal fights. Oh, is this that Irish guy? One he made of those his hands gentlemen?
2: Hard as stone is what he said. It made right? me hands hard as rock, stone. Rock hard.
0: Oh, let me hear this fella call. <laughs> Can we hear him talk? Probably, yeah. He's a. a this is a traveler why is it uh, why isn't it okay to say gypsy anymore what happened i don't know is that that's not acceptable like. anymore that's what i heard no you think it's bandages. because bandages kills the clown and i hear the cultural the man will or do nothing to him Okay, just stop right Did there because we don't understand <laughs> what you're saying.
1: I, I would <laughs> refer to him as—I wouldn't refer to him as a gypsy. I would refer to him as a pikey. That's a pikey. Ah, pikey Yeah.
0: Um, well, they call themselves travelers Travellers, as well, right? Course. It's a w- its w- these are weird distinctions,
1: you know. Yeah, that's I probably offended a bunch of people there, which I'm, I didn't mean to do. But L- yeah, the absolutely, bunch
0: of tough motherfuckers, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Good bunch fighters. of really tough motherfuckers. Mm. Nicky Holtskin, isn't he? Uh, is is isn't that he right? From that?
1: that I'm not sure. I'm, I think he is. He's very pretty. Uh, though, Tyson Fury, so. for sure. Tyson Fury is. For sure. I used to train in the same boxing uh, gym as him. Like, he used to have the ring the hour before me. And I remember watching him. He was just like this big hulking monster walking around. Dude, he's so ridiculously tall. Yeah. (laughs) ridiculous (laughs)
0: he's so tall and long and he moves so good for a big heavyweight nice dude though. god damn he's Mm. a great guy Mm. he's a sweetheart of a guy and he really genuinely cares to reach out to people and tell them that if you are going through depression if you're dealing with and suffering from mental illness talk about it and get help Mm. because i almost killed myself and now here i am champ of the world feeling great
1: yeah i'd love to see him against andy ruiz
0: i would love to see that too i think we'll see that i think we'll see all these fights Andy Ruiz is uh, not looking forward to fighting in Saudi Arabia. Apparently,
1: yeah. Why is it there? That makes no sense. I do not
0: look again. One more time. I'm a moron. I'm not a fight promoter. I don't know what the fuck goes on behind the so- the scenes with lawyers, and I don't know what what the contract said that he had. But what I had heard was that he had to fight in England. Like that was in the contract. That's what I had heard. But that could be horseshit. Yeah, I, mean, I have I, I, no I, idea. Maybe it, maybe it says in the contract that they have the right to tell him. I shouldn't have even said that I heard that because I don't even remember who told it to me. But the point is, there's a story that just came out that he does not want this fight to be in Saudi Arabia. I think he wants a fight in New York again. He He said he doesn't trust it over there. Yeah, you know, like he, he doesn't trust it in England either. He doesn't trust fighting Joshua in England. He's like, no, 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 no,
1: no, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, he's the champ now. He can call he's his, champ now, right? <laughs> he can call his champ. shot,
0: right? He's the champ. Yeah, he's the champ, man. Neutral Fucking terrorist. super nice
1: guy. Have you met him? Yo, no, I have not met he's him. He's no. great. He was awesome on your podcast. He's I great. I listening to that.
0: It's a good dude, man. Yeah. Genuine as fuck. And boy does he have like fluidity and efficiency in his right. punches.
1: No wasted movement. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing I was t- I was talking to um Tim Hendricks about we were we were discussing boxing he's he actually trains at the Ruka gym with um uh, uh, J- uh Jason Perillo. He's had a couple mm. of, a couple of fights himself. I'm a
0: huge Jason Perillo fan. Yeah. He's very guy. very good coach, man. Very good. In the corners he's great. Mm-hmm. Like his advice is great and you see like the advancement of his pupils. Like, he's got that deep bassy yep. voice. And deep, he doesn't kind of toot his, his own horn. ever Never. no, no. not you know that guy just stays under the radar and just kicks ass
1: I'd like to see a couple of young fighters go to his gym because he's like like the old guard kind of leaving mm-hmm. now like Bisping right. Bing and yeah. like cyborg I'm not sure where she what she's gonna do now like but yeah. well, I
0: think people are gonna you know up and coming people that are in that area for sure are gonna go mm. it's it's one of those things where it's like there's so many great trainers now that for fighters it's like where do you want to live do you want to live in San Diego do you want to live in L.A.? Do you want to live in Vegas? Like, where do you want to live? Like, mm. you just have to figure out where you want to live and then find somebody who's going to match up with your style. Yeah. Assuming you're realistically at the level that you could benefit from such a move, you know?
1: Yeah. Kind of spoiled for choice, really. Yeah. I was at American Top Team the other week, but I spent some time with Conan Silveira. And, I mean, that Can't guy... Can't get better is than a, that place. He's a wizard. He's a He's
0: wizard, a- and, and so is Dean. Dean Thomas has one of the best... Um, instagram pages with advice advice for young fighters and he had a great one today that i I texted him i'm saying this is genius advice telling him that one of the biggest things that inhibits their progress is uh not looking at themselves honestly Mm. not looking at their
1: their, what they're strong at what they're what they're weak at i think it helps to have a good sense of humor though as a fighter and and i think you know with him with him having such a good sense of humor it can be critical about himself and not take it to heart yeah i think there are a lot of fighters that are you know they're, they're too delicate to be to be honest with themselves like how many fighters yeah. they get knocked out and they don't watch the fight a lot a lot like, don't want to experience it they don't want to see it you yeah. that's that's crazy to me. that seems to be like an essential part of the learning process.
0: maybe in their mind they they know what happened and they don't want to experience the bad feeling again, and what they're just going to do is just get through this, learn and improve that they don't need to see themselves getting left hooked. They know what happened. Is that not they like, dropped their hand. It's like burying it deep down inside. You never Maybe. remember it exactly how it played out as well. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm sure. Well, unless it's final, right? Like if you if you wake up and you got flatlined and you look up and you see the highlight of you getting hit and then you barely remember it. Yeah. And then, I mean, how much of that is going to help you to watch that? Right? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like how much is it going to help Ben Askren to see Jorge Masvidal land that knee on him?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the the thing is with that, that was, I'm not saying it was a, it was a less technical s- circumstance, but it was one of those kind of wild circumstances, which, right. I mean, the, the only thing that he could have learned from it is the fact that Masvidal had probably figured out that he shoots with his head to that side. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, which is why Masvidal did the circle to make him force, you know, put his head on that side, yep. so it was in the right place. Dude, it was genius. It was. It was beautiful. It
0: was checkmate with one move.
1: Yeah, that's but what that's it the was. Thing, because it was one move. There was no. There was no build up, There was no setup. Mm-hmm. So. Like, a fight that lasts a couple of minutes, I think there's a lot to be learned from that, and, like, the process in which, you know, you mm-hmm. went through to be opened up for the knockout. Yeah, you know? Like, well, the Condit sure. fight, for me, like, I've watched that thousands of times. I used to walk through casinos in Vegas, and it was playing on a highlight <laughs> reel on the TV. I'm like, here we go again, you know? Fuck. But, like, I know exactly what went wrong. You know, I learned yeah. so much from that. And I but remember opening my eyes and thinking, i just feeling different. You don't know? you
0: feel, though, like, I mean now at this stage of your career, you know, you've become this uh celebrated commentator as well. And you can look back and you have so many highlights. Like there were so many great moments of your career. Like you could acknowledge that the bad moments are there, but they can't sting like they used to sting.
1: No, they they don't. I mean I, I, I've always had a good sense of humour. I've always you, been you always help. have. Yeah. yeah. I've always been I mean, you know, I got punched in the face. I, I get reminded of that line after the Condit fight all the time when you interview me it's First thing I thought to myself, I mean, it's, you've always got to be able to laugh at yourself because yes. you, you're exposed. You're very, very vulnerable. You're in front of millions of people putting your, your, basically your health on the line, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think having a sense of humor has always helped. And I think also now being able to look back from where I am now and look at my career and go, well, I had 10 fights in the UFC. I went four up, title fight, four down, and then I pulled it back for two. And that's where it kind of ended. So I had I had a bit of everything. I had a taste of everything. I had the quick rise. I was in a co-main event in my second fight. You know, 0-2 Arena in London, 69-second knockout, on top of the world. Marcus Davis after that was just ridiculous because of the build-up to it. Then Mike Swick, I'm fighting for a world title. Holy shit, what's happening here? Next thing, I'm facing off against George St. Pierre. And then I had like a I had like a four-month process after that of looking back at it with everybody saying, oh, you just need a bit of takedown offence. You just need some takedown offence. And I'd started to believe that in my own head and thought I was really, really fucking good. <laughs> and I did. I mean, it went <laughs> well, like... Well, you were really fucking yeah, good, man. Yeah, but no, not... I would, I, you thought you were better than I, you were. Absolutely, I did, yeah. And then I looked at Condit, and this is where my ego took over. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, what the fuck is he? He's not going to do anything to me. Like, he's, wow. he's awkward. He's slow. He's striking sucks. He's very predictable. He's not getting any punching power. <laughs> he won't be able to take me down. Like this was the whole conversation I was having in my head going into the fight. I was, I was just there was no way he was gonna, he was gonna beat me. Wow. You know, and that's where I, that was a, a good turning point for me because that put me back on the track where I should have been, and I'd already started to veer off after the GSP fight because the rise had been so quick, four mm. fights. So I, because I experienced that, it's nice for me to be able to, and I, I try not to talk about it, but to relate my experiences when i'm watching other fighters coming up mm. you know i can i can put myself in their shoes because i've probably experienced something of where they're at
0: for sure you know, a
1: high or a low yeah. I, you know so I, I i look back and i think maybe my career prepared me for where i'm at right now
0: oh for sure i think the best commentators for sure are former fighters i don't know what the fuck i'm doing in there man <laughs> <laughs> oh, as shit. a comedian you set the bar so high oh please come on it's uh <laughs> it's a great job uh, for me, it's a lot of fun, but I think it's best expressed by former fighters because there's if they could do everything that I can do, which most of them can, the, the big thing that's missing with me is not having fought in the UFC, where they can relay that. You know, it's very important. I've seen a lot of it. I, I understand what's going on, but there's a, an additional perspective that someone like you can provide. Michael Bisping, who I think is also excellent at it, of course. DC is my probably my all-time favorite guy to work with. Mm-hmm. Dominic is excellent attitude as is Paul Felder. It's like there's something unique about the perspective of You know, who used to be really fucking good at it, Frank Mir. Frank Mir's great. He was good. great. Mm-hmm. Dude,
1: give him a job. Yeah. Somebody yeah. give him a fucking job. Yeah. But then I would say the same thing about Jimmy Smith. Jimmy yes. Smith's excellent. Yes, he's you know,
0: excellent. And you know I think the UFC had decided that they wanted to use their former fighters more yeah. and sort of give them a career option after fighting, which You know, we look like Rashad Evans. He's really flourishing there. Tyron Woodley has already kind of established himself as being, uh, you know, a big time commentator. While he was the champ, after he was was Mm -hmm. a champ, he's doing more of that. Those, the more guys do that, the more they're going to see, like, oh, well, there is a, a life in sports after competition. I can make a, re- a great living, still be involved in the sport that I love that has given me so much and I've given so much too. And it's all like a cool thing. It's like yeah. you get – and I, I think I encourage more of them to do podcasts like Shab. You know, like Shab's kind of carved the path in terms of, like, ex-fighters becoming uh, successful at podcasts and so many people go to him for you know what's your take on Canelo versus Triple G what do you think's going to happen with this is Deontay Wilder ever going to fight Tyson Fury again like those those like coming from a former fighter man people really dig that it's a unique perspective and any if you can get good at fighting you can get good at talking true you it's, just it, figure it's it easy out.
1: to learn it that yeah. way around i yeah. think <laughs> get the fighting learned first and then figure out how to yes. tell, tell people about it I, I often think you know when i'm talking to people though so, like Anthony Smith, I, when, I, when I speak to him, I always think to myself, as soon as he's done fighting, he can get crossed straight over into, into broadcasting 100%. he speaks so well. And yes. every time I, f- I find a fighter and I, I feel that about them, I always make sure I tell them. yeah, Because although you don't want to think about it when you're a fighter because you always want to think, well, you, of course, you're going to become the world champion, of course, you're going to be massively successful and not have to worry about it because that's the only mindset that you should have as a fighter, of course. But there is life after fighting and, you know... What I've realized is that if I'd have had other options like planned when I was fighting, I would have had a lot less pressure when I was fighting.
0: This is my advice that I would say. I would say for sure, if you're the type of person that needs to concentrate on one thing at a time and that one thing is fighting, just fight. But if you're interested in doing it in any way, you don't have to think like, this is my way out. You could just say, this is another cool thing I do. Yeah. So don't fuck with your head. Don't fuck with your head and say, hey, maybe when I retire, this would be my career. Like, man, Stay in the game, but you can just get good at stuff, too, and just be zen about it. Yeah. The more you put pressure on, like, maybe it's time for me to move on. Maybe it's time for me to... Like, guys can head fuck themselves. You don't want to fight when you're head fucked. We've all seen guys fight when they're head fucked. And you're like, what happened to him? Oh, he broke up with this girl. Oh, this happened or that happened or someone in the family died. And like,
3: eee.
1: hmm yeah, that's why Paul Felder fights like it's always his last fight because he knows he's got a good commentary gig when he uh, when he retires. <laughs> guy's a lunatic. He is a lunatic, but he's great at he comment. He I mean, he's awesome.
0: You know, he's a theater major.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. just
0: like super well-spoken guy. Yeah, he's quite a gentleman.
1: We they bring him if they bring him in for the European ones. We worked on uh, Moscow together and a few of them. Dude, he's very him good. Him
0: and Barbosa too is gonna be chaos. That's a crazy... As long as that motherfucker lasts, that's going to be crazy. That's going to be crazy. Yeah. Barbosa has been in some fucking wars. He is amazing. Holy he shit. Is
1: amazing. He just, is the
0: fastest switch kick I've ever seen in my life. Oh, for sure.
1: And and, he, and it's, it's, it's the placement as well. It's the timing crazy. and the placement of it.
0: It's stunning how fast it is though, mm-hmm. man. It's stunning. Like when you see it in real life, you're just like, Jesus. Like, I've seen... A fucking thousand people f- throw f- switch kicks, probably. Yeah. But
1: there's one that stands out. It's Barboza. Like Jesus, it is ridiculous.
0: Like a world champion tie. Mm-hmm.
1: That's yeah. what it looks like. He was down at American Top Team. I was there a few weeks ago, um, and just watching him hit pads and move <laughs> around and stuff. It's dude. There's like, no. He's the best kicker in the sport.
0: In my yeah. For my money, like his leg. He's the first guy to stop two guys with leg kicks. Mm-hmm. Uh Rafael de Oliveira and um, there's another one that, dude, a wrestler. It was just like he, he's a fucking lethal
1: kicker, man. The yeah.
0: first guy to ever stop somebody with a wheel kick, Terry Adam. You know?
1: God, how many times have we seen that? Fuck, play? man. That's on everything. Always. Fuck.
0: Well, I remember thinking, like, Terry's got to take some chances here, but if he takes chances, he could get knocked out. So I was literally saying that when he got hit with the wheel kick. Mm.
1: He's, he's a fighter that I think would benefit from that weight class between 155 and 170.
0: Mike almost. Lulo. Mike Lulo was the other guy he stopped. with okay. leg kicks.
1: Mm. Oh, I knew man. I'd remember it. You remember? Do you remember the Jose Aldo uh, Uriah Faber? Too. What's that? I
2: wasn't in the UFC. Sorry. What was another one? The fight right before that. He Marcelo Go outside the UFC. Yeah, stopped? The guy, the dude. Scene.
0: He's fucking lethal. Yeah, his leg kicks are horrific. The Remember. only one that's close was Aldo in his right. prime.
1: Oh, man, against Uriah Faber. Oh, God. I, I did a show with the Faber the week after, and he came in on crutches. His yeah. whole leg was like, you know, the, the eggplant emoji. That's yes. basically what his leg looked I like. I saw it. it. Was ridiculous. Well,
0: people don't understand. You're, you're at grave risk of infection when you have that kind of bruising all it's throughout all right. your leg. I mean, that, is a, that could go terribly wrong, but like, mm. that was a terrible leg injury. That shows you how fucking tough Uriah Faber is. Oh, he's ridiculous. Dude. And he's back. It's not just that, too. <laughs> how about the fight where he fought Mike Brown and he broke both his hands? Yeah. Broke both his fucking <laughs> hands. So he's throwing elbows and kicks and he's trying to keep this guy off him?
1: Yeah. Dude. And he's back as well. And he's back. I want to see him against the Huda. Dude, I want to see it, too.
0: I mean, it came close. It seemed like this is almost something that really could happen. Because mm. like when he knocked out Ricky Simone, everybody was like, what? Yeah. Like, what? This is crazy. Uriah comes back. He's starching people. And good fighters knocks out a good fighter. Mm-hmm. A young, up-and-coming, talented kid. Just catches him perfect and like, damn, Uriah Faber's in the hunt. Yeah. And then everybody loves him. And so he starts talking shit to Cejudo. And Cejudo starts talking shit to him. And you're like, wow. Yeah. But first Cejudo has to fight Valentina Shevchenko and Amanda Nunes, apparently. No, you see his new happen. shirt? Yeah. He's got intergender champion shirts. No, yes, 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 yes. Go to his Instagram. Please, I love no. it. I love it, Henry. I'm in your corner. You keep this no, up. No, no, Henry. Come on. <laughs> no more going... rabbits out He's... of hats. No more capes. And... He's got people excited about flyweight, man. Yeah, but. Dude, you got to see his t-shirt. stuff. I love it. Like, we are all in no, on it, man. No. This might as well be pro wrestling. <laughs> Look at this. Everybody's in on it. Let me see it. Look at that. <laughs> Intergender world champion. It's all in gold on a black shirt. God bless you, Henry Cejudo. Oh, that's... God, God bless you. That's terrible. I mean, he's fucking in. me in his way. He's arguably if he's not the most accomplished MMA fighter in in history he's the most accomplished combat sports athlete that's that's
1: undeniable for sure that's undeniable Olympic gold medalist
0: and two division world champion he can do whatever the fuck he wants (laughs) you let him wear that shirt you let him go crazy you let him do whatever he wants that's Henry Cejudo he does whatever he wants I think the girls are all in on it. And I think it helps everybody because everybody's getting pumped up about it. It's a joke. Amanda Nunes thinks it's a joke. She posed with them. Valentina Shevchenko's yeah, in they on it. they'd both fight him, though. They would both fuck him up, too. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. they you, scary. It, it, you, know, you really don't want to see a 135-pound man ever fight Amanda Nunes. You, no. know? you don't want to see it. You don't want to see it. But I'll see Amanda Nunes fight anybody else, and sure. I'll see Valentina Shevchenko fighting anybody else. I mean, it would it'd be... It would be horrible if you saw like a men's world champion fight a women's world champion and he fucked her up. That would be terrible. It would be
1: awful. I would never ever want to see that. I was offered a fight against Jermaine
0: Durandami once. She's hot in a scary way. <laughs> she's scary. Valentina Shevchenko's hot in a scary I don't way.
1: Know. Yeah, you know what I mean. Think... I
0: mean that with all due confidence or all due respect. Rather, I'm a giant fan of hers. I think she's me. I had a conversation with uh, Dream Killer Bolanos, you know Gaston Bolanos from uh, Muay Thai, and now he fights. Um, yep. He's fighting in Bellator. Uh, we were talking about her, and he, he said, I think she has the best fight IQ of uh, anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe better than anybody in the sport, man or woman. And I was like,
1: I can't argue with you. No. Well, she- I mean, you watched that last fight against Liz Carmouche, and I know a lot of people complained that it was, a, you know, it was a slow fight. but And this is something I realized, actually, during that fight. Sometimes you need to see the whole octagon to really appreciate what's going on. Yeah. Like sometimes you need to see, like, an elevated shot of the whole space because... Her ability to control that space with the, the
2: threat of doing
1: something and her ability to cut people off.
0: What is she doing here? Superman breaking punch?
2: Down, she's breaking down a Superman punch.
0: Oh. Yeah, see, she's gans- hot in a scary
1: way. In a Bond villain kind of way. Yeah, right? yeah, you're like, you like, please. She throws her spinning back fist differently as well, which I think there's a good reason for. Because most people are throwing their spinning back fist with their arm straight and mm-hmm. they're breaking their forearm. Right. Because when she throws it, she's throwing it with her elbow down, which means that if she hits with the forearm, it's hitting both bones. Interesting. And I think, yeah. that's, I think that's, the, that's the reason that she does it. You I mean, might be right.
0: I mean, it makes sense. The, um, it is harder to break the bone that way, right? I would think so. Is it, though? Let me think. Let me just think if that makes sense. You've got to think
1: hitting one bone is going to be weaker. than But if you block
0: bones. it, you want to block it with the edge. You never want to block it like that. Like if you're blocking a kick, you don't want to take it like that. That's how your arm snaps. I wouldn't block a kick. I would take it on my
1: on my. But what arm. if you have to block a kick? What if you get no. stuck here? What do you do if you get stuck here? Yeah, but, but if you... the kick's coming over, I'm tucking up. I'm taking it on the bit on like the meat of my arm okay wherever, the, wherever the, i'm hopefully, taking the kick hopefully H- hopefully but if of it course. hits your forearm
0: hey, wh- wouldn't
1: you rather, I'd it rather hit here rather take forearm than a face for sure for sure for sure
0: but wouldn't you rather have it hit here than here it seems like here's going to... folks who're listening we're describing the outside <laughs> blade of the bone which would be like the edge of a 2x4 versus the flat part of a 2x4 i think if you kick the flat part it would break whereas if you kick the edge it probably is a little bit more durable you think i think so so Someone i think the problem knows. is yeah, I think the problem is actually catching it flat. Like you're, it's one of those things where it's, it's not the bone, the size difference is so huge that that little bone is going to break. Like if if someone's a really good kicker, like if Francis Ngannou kicks your arm, some yeah. big giant dude with power, it, this part's going to break. It's yeah. not his shin. The
1: shin's not going to break. Dude, when Anthony Johnson kicked me, I felt like someone had hit me with a tree. See, that's what they look like. Wow, they look weird. They don't look like you what you would think they would look like. That's we're looking
0: at the bones of the forearm right now. You have a delusional idea what your bones look like. Yeah. I thought they looked cooler.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's weird that that's our shape, right? That's what keeps us together. Just kind of all floating together. Just weird fucking hard stuff. Hard stuff that allows us to articulate as we move through Earth. But then you see other animals like octopus. No hard stuff at all. Nothing.
1: Scares the shit out of me. They're weird. Did you see that uh,
2: little clip going around of the snail that had a parasite in it? That this, the parasite took over, and it's like pulsing in its eyes no. and the body. Dude, you haven't oh. seen it? Oh.
0: No. Oh, you know what? I think I saw that a long time ago. Something really similar to that. Now that now that you're saying it, I love these goddamn things. I love those grasshoppers that get infected with that water worm that makes them commit suicide. Oh, ju- dude, I have seen this. Oh my god, this is amazing. So this thing is inside its eye like a c- goddamn amusement it, park ride.
2: It's trying oh, to trick a bird to eat it cuz it'll repopulate inside the bird and take so over. So it's kind of trick a bird? Yeah, cuz it's the snail's already dead. I think it's gone.
1: Oh, what the fuck? nature you fucking scary bitch. <laughs> We've got it pretty good in comparison oh to the Oh my god, of the we do Animal Kingdom. What
0: a tricky weird way to propagate. Hey, look at me. Come on. No, you want to me. Eat me. Come on. Come and eat me. Fucking terrifying. So this aquatic worm, it uh, climbs inside the grasshopper's body, and then when it's ready to be born, it makes the grasshopper commit suicide so it can like, get in the water and swim away. Literally talks the grasshopper like, come on, bitch, you're going over here. Like it hijacks its physical motion, makes it jump into water and That's drown, funny. and then the wor- worm fucking comes out what of it like what was the one with Stephen fly, King, King
1: movie. The fly that lands on the spider and... Gets inside oh, it. There's yeah. inside the spider that eats it from the inside. And yeah,
0: what is isn't there like a, a tarantula hawk or something that does that?
2: Oh, I've st- stumbled across <laughs> something similar that's talking about cordyceps, <laughs> which we've talked about before. Yes, they it's, grow on. Um, cicadas catapults. have domesticated that fungus. <laughs> what? <laughs> and they what? use it. Yeah.
0: What? Cicadas have repeatedly turned the infamous cordyceps fungi into indispensable allies. What? Yeah. They grow it on their body? Is that what he's doing?
2: That looks like an ant, but that I guess it's a ant. cicada. Yeah, I don't know. Is that a cicada? This is a relative of the zombie ant has been domesticated by cicadas. Oh. So
0: maybe they own food. that
2: shit. They like, they're <laughs> running the show.
0: Well, there was one thing that I saw in the cordyceps mushroom, and I don't know if it's exact. I think there's like many different strains of cordyceps mushroom, but one, uh, some particular fungi. It might not have even been cordyceps, but I think it was. Jesus, let me get the story. Um, it infects an ant. And the other ants take it away from the colony because they know that it's going to get to a certain point and then it's going to explode. So the ants will uh, literally fill up with these spores and then explode. And then the spores get into the sky and land on the other ants and they all
1: get infected. And they figured that out. So they take it away from the nest.
0: Somehow or another, they know that this Uh, fucking creepy ant is like a bomb. It's like a dead bomb. And inside of it, the cordyceps mushroom exploding ant rips itself apart to protect its, protect its own. What is that?
2: I just is this a different one?
0: one. It sounded the um, same. Google worm infested by fungus. Well, yeah. yeah. Google that. <laughs> Try that. Not worm. Um, ant. Ant. Yeah, ant, yeah. ant infested by fungus. But. Um, this is so they know than it. Anything it's any terrifying. humans could write. We we just don't think it's terrifying because they're little. Uh-huh. That's all it is. Like if they get too big, we kill them. There's yeah. not, not there's no chicken sized spiders running around my yard. Get the fuck out of here. You're dead. I'm
1: not gonna call scientists. I'm gonna shoot you first. But then you've kind of got to <laughs> put. <laughs> but then you kind of got to put yourself in that circumstance. <sighs> like imagine that happening to you on yeah, that scale, dude. Or put yourself on that scale. Ah.
0: Dude, if there was cockroaches and and fucking giant bugs the size of dogs running around, we would have real problems. Real problems. Real problems. They'd go right through your fucking walls of your house, eat everything in there. They might eat your baby.
1: Dude, why are you putting these
0: scorpions in my head? and fucking <laughs> spiders and black widows? Imagine black widows were giant. You'd be so fucked. Oh. Black widows the size of giraffes. Yeah, just running around jacking people. It would change everything about the way we lived. Yeah, if we didn't have weapons, guess what? All that shit would be real. Bites caves. Look at that. So here it is. So one of them gets infected, and the other ones are going to carry this dude away, because if they don't, he starts growing shit on his head. It's like uh, this this fungus somehow or another gets into his body, and it starts sprouting this mushroom out of the top of his head. And we're looking at a slow-motion um version of this where you're seeing this thing sprout out of this dead ant's head. It, it's, it took 3 weeks to film this. Yeah. Dude, this is like a science fiction movie. It's just they they're operating on a different time scale. But if that happened as quickly as you're watching it in this video, you'd freak <laughs> the fuck out. Are we like, going to see it explode? It growing so quick.
1: Is it going to explode? Is that the grand finale? I don't know.
2: I but, think that's the idea, though. Yeah, that's, I think yeah. said
1: it, they, it explodes
2: out of its head is what they're sort of saying. Oh, okay. There. So it keeps from it. the head. Oh, okay. That's kind oh, of, kind of it, a dramatic.
0: But way. I think it does blow spores. I think some of them, yeah, see, some of them, like, fill up, and then spores blow out of them, and those spores can infect other ants. That's why they were removing them from the colony. If you're a biologist, I, str- I sincerely apologize for butchering <laughs> all science. That's how I, stum- I stumbled
2: across. There are exploding ants, though. Oh, like they, they, li- they literally from? explode. I don't know. It's, it's like a whole They genusome. explode,
0: but their nests live to see another day. Their oh, abdomen's rupture.
2: The, the whole fungi.
1: Well, this, do you
0: ever kingdoms. see what they do with leaf cutter ants? Uh-uh. Ugh. Oh, so ruthless. The women are so monstrous. They chop off the man's arm and fuck him to death. They they chop off his arms and then they carry him away. Yeah, they, they find the males. There must be a reason for breeding. For they find the male, they right. say, oh, well, you're not going anywhere, bitch. And they cut his arms off, and then they bring him somewhere to fuck him. Make sure this is true. Please <laughs> Google this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's true. <laughs> I watched this whole documentary. I remember they were uh, snipping off the arms and legs of the ant, and then they carried him away.
1: Imagine. That's fucking terrifying.
0: Dude. They're like, this is how We've we got do it. it. Good. We've they got know it how good. to do it. They're like, this is how we do
1: it. We cut off your arms and legs, and then we fuck you to death. Imagine how that changes life coaching dude if that yeah. was
0: the reality if you're a dude right because sitting around waiting for a horde of
1: angry egg carrying women come charging through your door and remove your limbs they're terrifying enough women are we don't need to make them any more terrifying
0: <sighs> women humans are awesome but women bugs that's a weird Ruthless. thing like there's no
1: there's no love in the bug world no
0: it's just you're making honey and getting shit there's done. something
1: beautiful about that though it's like oh, yeah. it's like pure you know it just keeps rolling over it's just you know it's found its rhythm. We're the ones that make it complicated with all the other shit that we add onto it. Well, we've made ourselves so safe
0: and so removed from the the whole cycle of life, and that's amazing that we've done that, or that somebody other than us has done that, <laughs> and then we reap the benefits. But because of that, we look at real the real suffering of the natural world almost like as if it's, if it's preventable, or if it's bad, or if it's you know it's something we, we should be sad about, you know. But there's some really horrific things that take place especially in the insect world on a daily basis that make you just go what like have you ever seen those hornets that fly into the honeybee nest and yes. behead everyone
1: I have seen that that's terrifying
0: but it's like a Japanese hornet yeah. right and they yeah. fly in and just a few of them and they're a good size as oh, well. Oh, they're they? giant. Like, they have you wouldn't want it any bigger. Hedge cutters for a face. <laughs> and they just come in and chop the heads off of these, fucking, these, these other honeybees. And it's crazy to watch, man, because the honeybees can't do jack shit. Just hundreds of them. And they're just getting slaughtered. Just thousands of them. But then they figured out the way to kill these things is to get on top of them and bat their wings to heat up. So they heat up to the point where it overheats the bee and kills it or the hornet and kills it How did they figure that out? How did they figure that out? But that's their strategy now Their strategy is they swarm all over the hornet And they
1: just keep flapping their wings until they overheat that motherfucker That's the argument for collective consciousness Because like someone figured that out One of those those honeybees figured that out And then Mm. the rest of them around the world I've probably started using that same tactic probably yeah
0: well that's the Rupert Sheldrake um, thought is that the the sweet he,
1: potatoes in the well sand he's
0: thing? he's uh, he's he had this uh, theory called morphic resonance and um, he one of the things that he was saying was he was talking about studies they did with rats and mazes and then if they did a study with a rat in a maze like on the East Coast rats on the West Coast if they went through the same maze would get through it quicker
3: hmm so What's it's like the- they were
0: learning from each other how to get through. It's almost like they were sharing yeah. some sort of an understanding. I mean, w- we want to think that all genetics are the same in terms of like, you know, you have a child and your child shares your wife's genetics and your genetics, and this is, this is how it works, and this is, this is the way people learn things. And that might be the way we learn most things, but it also might be... That we're getting some information from each other in some weird way, and it gotta be, and we, but we might be a little detached from it. Mm-hmm. Whereas rats who are out there fucking scratching and clawing, and they don't have a language, they might be completely tuned into it. Yeah. It might be the sacrifice that language that we made when we went with language, mm-hmm. where we lost our ability to read each other the way we used to, or to, to read thoughts and ideas where we used to. Yeah. We rely instead on this other thing. So it's sort of like when you wear shoes all the time, your feet
1: get soft. For sure. Well, we have. I mean, we've done a lot of things to detach ourselves from all of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and and I think you know, people that like Wim Hof and Tim Sheaf and people like that that kind of go back to. As far as close back to nature as they can, they Holy must be tuning yeah. back into something that that we're lacking. I always feel that, like that. I want to get closer to that resonance, and I do feel like like this is the study with the the monkeys on the islands, the archipelago, and they drop sweet potatoes in the sand. Have you have you heard this?
0: I think so, but go ahead.
1: So they they drop sweet potatoes in. So I, I mean, I'm. This is just a, a, a gathering of of what I remember from reading the study. But there was a, a series of islands, all with the same species of monkey on the islands they dropped sweet potatoes into the sand on one island and the monkeys went over and bit into them and because they were covered in sand, they spat them out and left them. Some of the younger monkeys realized that if they took them into the sea, they could wash the sand off and then they could eat the sweet potatoes. And then when they dropped the sweet potatoes onto the successive islands, they already knew to wash them in the sea.
3: Oh,
0: right. So that's very similar to the Rupert Sheldrake thing. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I really wonder. I mean, I really wonder... How much like the human race benefits from the collective knowledge of everyone involved, not just through the internet and books and, and universities, but maybe even just through consciousness. Like maybe there's some element of it that's being relayed through consciousness. Mm-hmm.
1: See, I'm invested in it because if I have an idea, I automatically think that that idea is now available to everybody else. So mm. I need to jump on that shit pretty quick. So I use it as like, you know, oh, yeah. a way of motivating myself.
0: Yeah, for sure. Right. And if you, you know, if you have an idea, do you ever wonder where it's coming from? Mm. Like all the time. Where is that? All the time. What is that?
1: I've but I've had experience like with mushrooms. I've I I used to work with mushrooms all the time, and I used to work with them. Mushrooms, yeah. Same same office. Yeah, yeah, same office. You know, (laughs) there were two (laughs) cubicles over. Colleagues, you know, and um, I I know
0: mushrooms. I worked
1: with them. I always felt like I was downloading stuff. I always felt Mm. like it was being poured into my head, from somewhere else. That's so
0: very similar. Um, a lot of people have very similar
1: experiences. So I always feel like I'm receiving it from someone else. And I, I think it, that's it's a good way of kind of detaching myself from it, not well, taking ownership of it.
0: Yeah, Stephen Pressfield wrote about that in a really unique way in The War of Art because he talked about how just showing up and counting on the muse,
3: mm-hmm.
0: like the, thinking about the muse as a real thing. You know, the muse has always been like some – the idea is like something's coming to you with these ideas, something like something magical, right? And so I think his idea is to treat it like it is magical and respect it and to show up every day at work at the same time and, and summon the muse. And then if you do just do that with discipline and you act as a professional, all this stuff comes to you. Where does it come from? Well, let's just say it comes from the muse. It might not. Let's just say it does. Treat it like it does. And it works out. Like, that's it's one of those weird ones. Whereas, if you pretend it's magic, it kind of works like magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you just analyze it, these are just neurons firing in my brain. The <laughs> yeah. collective work of all these other people that have ever experienced in movies <laughs> and literature, they're all feeling through me. So, let's not get carried away about the pretentiousness of creativity. Might be pretentious, might be pretentious to think that way. But you might be open to the idea that let's just pretend that it's magic. Let's just pretend just trick yourself into thinking that it's magic and then operate like it's magic but then give it the respect as if it's like you know if you're like, going you know, to piss off a wizard cuz you show up late right show up on time do it
1: cr- and treat it like you respect it yeah and it keeps you humble it keeps you appreciative yeah. yeah i would say so i like that theory
0: it's not a bad theory but it's got a lot of holes in it i'm sure a well, smarter person than us <laughs> to shoot it right down <laughs> What do you um? You I know I know, know how much you've talked about this, but you and I have talked about it that you've been
1: thinking about fighting again. Mm-hmm. Where are you at with that right now? Um, right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get back in the Usada testing pool. I have to be in the pool for dun, four dun, months, dun. and then once I'm in the pool for four months, then I have the option to fight if I choose to. Are you going
0: to be the first guy they test for mushrooms for they're sure? Have a new mushroom
1: test, absolutely, going straight to you. I- I'll be, a, I'll be a, <laughs> a, a happy test pilot for that. I don't mind that at all. Yeah. No, so, I mean, so I've got to do four months because I never officially retired. And so the, the whole thing, show up at six in the morning, you've got to pee in a cup, shake sure. your blood. Yeah. The problem is I'm on the road all the time. And that's, mm-hmm. this is a conversation I've had with Jeff Nowitzki is because, like, I can't give them, th- like, I don't know exactly how it works, but as far as I know, you have to you have give them, like, three addresses that these are the places that you're most likely going to be at. Mm-hmm. And if you're not at any of those places, you have to let them know where you are. And wow! I'm so, like, what if place. you're leaving your hotel to go to a pub? You have to tell them. Well, you have to, if you're within an hour of the place, they give you like an hour or two to get back to one of those addresses. <laughs> the show. I know. I mean, you know. what if you're
0: on the hottest of all hot dates? Jesus oh. Christ, you sada, <laughs> Davitsky, you cock blocking asshole! <laughs> I'm out here trying to get my freak on with this wonderful lady, yeah. trying to check my pee at four in the morning. The
1: fuck out of here! I don't mind that. I don't mind that. But I, I'm I'm going to get back on the outrageous, and then you know. My options are open.
0: It would be really nice if there was a way where they could. I mean, I'm talking crazy. Really, I should shut the fuck up because now I'm, I'm thinking it's creepy. Because I'm thinking like transhumanist shit. I'm like, maybe they just have a chip in you, like all the time, and you just upload every day. They know. Hey, look at that, Dan Hardy hasn't done anything. Everything's good. Vitamin B's a little high, but that's water soluble. That's, that's a good. a bit much.
1: That's a bit much. I know. I'd need to be much. paid a lot more to have a chip inserted. A hundred
0: percent. It's a stupid idea. What I is the have price on that though? <laughs> Imagine if there was no price, and if you had to get a new chip, if you fought for a Bellator, and then there was problems <laughs> turning off your old chip because it was like uh, like if you get an iPhone, you try to switch to Android. Good fucking luck, cupcake. <laughs> They're gonna ruin you with those iMessages. Oh. You, you're not gonna get half your messages. You're all gonna be all fucked up. So you're gonna have to figure out a way to switch it over so what if when you move over to bellator you get one of those bellator chips the ufc's chip cancels out the bellator chip everybody gets mad the one fc
2: chip would definitely be way different too
0: the one (laughs) fc chip gives you steroids it's like (laughs) just shoots them right into you
2: (laughs) you got the old (laughs)
1: pride chip in there that keeps switching on every now and then well
0: okay all bullshit aside but what if there was like we know that testosterone levels just in natural human beings it's not fair right they're not fair They're not evenly distributed. There's some people that are high testosterone, and there's some people that are lower testosterone. And it doesn't necessarily correlate with success, but it's pretty high. Mm -hmm. It's probably pretty high correlation with success. There's something there, right? What if there was a way? Where they would put everybody at the same level electronically. They just put this little, this chip in there, and they go, well, "What's going on is your adrenal glands and your endocrine system are not firing cor- correctly. So what we'll do is give your DNA the signal to ramp up its production of testosterone by 170 percent. I don't like and it. So you crank it up, so it <laughs> makes your body do it, makes your body crank up your growth hormone, your thyroid, everything is perfect. So everyone fights. At like a
1: perfect level. Everyone fights at whatever the number is. But then but that's that's natural selection playing out in MMA. Like I like that mm-hmm. natural variance. Yep. That, that's what like some people have got naturally heavy hands. Some yes. people are naturally stronger than others. Some people have got more testosterone than others. You know, it's just a, it's a natural advantage which I like to see play out in I MMA. I do too. My Especially my, my
0: idea MMA. sucks. It's <laughs> a terrible idea. But how long before we see like some sort of like physical equality We'd have to, have a di- to be league.
1: implemented? We'd have to have a different league. Yeah. You know?
0: I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so opposed to the idea that everyone is the same. You know, like uh, that, that. There's something good about everyone being the same. Like yeah. we're we're clearly not the same, no, and, at, all. at all. And some people, when you run into like certain dudes like Alistair Overeem, you're like, oh okay, you're from another planet. <laughs> 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 the fucking size of you, how strong that dude is, especially when he's like when he fought Brock Lesnar. You're like, okay, what fucking planet are you from, man? Because you're not from planet where I'm from. You're so like ridiculously powerful, you know. And there's there's other people that just they're not, you know, they're marathon runners. They weigh 130 pounds. They're never going to be any bigger than that there's not even this is not even you know some, some people are tyson fury some people are me yeah you know some some people are brock lesnar some people are you it's like fucking it's not even it's
1: just weird like people are we a weird conglomeration of shapes but then the thing is, if it was if it was completely even across the board, then there would be the opportunity for one person to be completely superior to everybody else. Oh yeah. Whereas with the natural selection, like you've got, you're never going to get Brock Lesnar winning marathons, so he can always <laughs> appreciate a marathon runner yes. and what they can do. You know.
0: True. That's true. Keeps everyone humble. Well, it's, it definitely shows you that there's merits to all sorts of different shapes and sizes, like particularly marathon runners, right? If you want to be able to go somewhere and, and stay alive, you know, you have to keep moving. Mm-hmm. It's one of the benefits, like one of the things that I think inherently we respect about marathon runners is they can keep running and we know we can't keep running. So why do you run? You run to get away from things or to chase things? Well, what if you're chasing something and you get tired? What if you're running away from something and you get tired? They don't get tired. That's admirable. Like, it locks into our, it's, a, it's a, a part of your psyche.
1: Yeah. I've always felt like the optimal, like, fight condition for, like a, like, a lifelong martial artist is to find that balance between all of those things. So you've got, you know, a, a, an equal balance of everything. You're not, you don't excel at one particular thing. You know, like, you get these martial artists that are just, you know, these juiced up monsters. Right, like, right. Like, like I, I can see a glaring weakness in your, in your technique already because I know it's got, it's finite. I know it's going to run out. And then I look at somebody else who's they're focused entirely on technique and they've got no muscle mass and no physicality mm-hmm. to them, and I'm like, well, I can see the glaring weakness in your technique because you're going to struggle to apply it. Yes, you know what I mean. Yes. So it's like, yes. like finding that that Goldilocks zone, that beautiful balance in the middle. Yeah. Where is that zone? I don't know. I've been searching for it for my it, for my whole life. It's
0: different with different styles, but here's one thing I can tell you: other than 145 pounds and 185 pounds. Every single weight class is dominated by a wrestler. Mm. Stop and think about that. But I, d- Henry d- Cejudo, 125 and 135. Then at 145, Max Holloway. That's one weight class. Then you go to 55, Khabib motherfucking Nurmagomedov, who's one mm. of the scariest grapplers in the sport. You go up to 70, Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington, two fucking beast grapplers. Yep. You go up to eighty five. You got the exception. That's Robert Whitaker. But guess what? I thought he lost against Joel Romero in the second fight. I thought yeah, Romero last beat him three rounds. I thought Romero beat him. Mm. I mean, and Robert Whitaker. I'm a giant fan of his. I think he's fucking amazing, and he's he epitomizes to me like the best of all well rounded capabilities. His yeah. takedown defense is excellent. He's a great striker. He's accurate. He's got knockout power. He's got everything. I just felt like in that second fight it just seemed to me that Yoel had done enough to win. Mm -hmm. But – I'm open to an argument against that. It was not it was not egregious, like an awful decision where you're disgusted by it. It was like, ooh, I think that one I'd have to go and watch it again. But I think you would make a real good argument that Yoel was the only one that heard him. And he heard him a couple of
1: times, particularly in the second fight. Yeah, I-, I think I had the last three rounds to Yoel in that fight. He's always a slow yes. starter. People always think that he's, you know, it, it, people always have got this perspective on him that he's this really, really fast starter. He's very explosive and stuff. But he's, he doesn't. He just kind of lulls mm-hmm. you in with that slow. Style. Sneaks, you, sneaks yeah. on you and then explodes. And then goes. He's...
0: And he's so scary that you don't know what to do when he's lulling. Because when he's lulling, you, you don't want to attack him because he's so fucking fast. You know, that guy, when he landed that flying knee on Chris Wybin, oh, it was man. like, Jesus Christ. He's such a freak athlete, man. So, okay, that's 85. Robert Whitaker, let's call him the one of two exceptions.
1: 205. What about the female weight classes.
0: Well, let's go to just, let's get done with the male first because oh, okay. the female's a different animal. Right. <laughs> Uh, 205, John Jones. Yep. Heavyweight, Daniel Cormier. Yep. I mean, that is fucking crazy. There's not a guy. Go- if you wanted to ask someone, hey, um, uh, my kid's thinking about becoming a mixed martial arts fighter. What what uh, discipline do you think you'd start with first? It's either like a traditional martial arts where you learn how to kick when you're like real little and you just learn a lot of flashy kicks because you'll carry that with you. Uh, And you'll develop leg dexterity, but then wrestling. Mm -hmm. For sure wrestling. Yeah. Because if you're a dominant wrestler, that advantage... Is if you if you're real similar in everything else, but you're dominant in wrestling, you're going to be able to control the clinch. You're going to be able to get the guy down. You're going to be able to do things to them. And it just you see it. It might not be the most, most glamorous way to win fights. You know, like sometimes people get upset that someone takes someone down and just kind of hits them while they're down. But guess what? They're hitting them and they're doing something to that person that person doesn't want to be done. And maybe it's not the most exciting thing for you to watch. But as someone who respects what the sport is supposed to be all about. The, the, like, What can this guy do to that guy? Well, that guy can take you down and punch you in the fucking face And you can't do anything about it And mm-hmm. even if you get up and you say, I'm not hurt Okay, well you never got up though Yeah, that's This is a viable, legitimate way to win fights And the guys who can smash from the top They're the most scary proposition mm-hmm. Because you can't get up You yeah. can't get up and Khabib's on there talking shit to you going come on talk now boom talk now boom <laughs> it's terrifying right because yeah, you can't
1: get them off you but that's see for me i've kind of started to change my perspective because everybody you speak to kind of divides my uh mma into you know the the, the grappling arts the ground arts jujitsu wrestling and then the striking arts like loosely into three categories but I don't I don't see wrestling as a part of that. I see wrestling as, like, that's the foundation. That's mm. the glue that holds everything together. Yeah, I think you're right. So I think, like, when you watch a, a fight where someone is is winning with just wrestling and very little else, that's a boring fight because it's not a fight. That's right. a wrestling match. Right. The wrestling is the thing that enables you to utilize the submissions or the striking. And, it, like, there's something instinctively about us. Like, whenever, whenever there's a fight where they're just wrestling or there's someone just dominating the top position and not using it at all the fans get restless, they start to boo because mm-hmm. they like, they feel like they're being robbed of what what they came to see. And that's my only, my only criticism when it comes to wrestling is to use just wrestling. Like it, you, You've you got to understand that that is the foundation, that's the glue that you bolt everything else onto. So that's why Khabib's so good because he uses wrestling to put people in a position where he can beat them up. Or, I mean, Chuck Liddell, he used his wrestling to keep people in a position where he could knock them out. But wrestling, the, that's, that's the glue. That's yeah. the part, you know. And what's beautiful <laughs> about Cejudo is is that he's and he, in, instead of having a method of wrestling, he has principles of wrestling. He understands how to break a body down, and that's like I understand that from a striking perspective. And it's taken me years to to start to see that from a, a grappling perspective as well. Mm. Um, you know, like training with the old Ten Planet guys and stuff. Like they had quite a quite a um um, uh, what's the best way of putting it? an instinctive understanding of how to break down and control a human body based on the techniques that Eddie had developed and it took me ages to kind of start to figure out that it's it's not like I'm not trying to learn techniques to do that I've got to understand the principle of it to break it down and to watch the Hudo chain things together against the Demetrius Johnson you know go for the inside reap and then Demetrius Johnson steps out so he ankle picks him in the same process like the principle instead of the method is, is a beautiful thing to watch.
0: There's also the mental toughness aspect of wrestling that I think is undeniable. For it sure. It teaches you how to be super uncomfortable at an early age. And there's something about that uncomfortable grind that if you can get through that and make that normal for you, you could get through almost anything. Mm-hmm. And these guys, you see them like perfect example, Cejudo versus um, Marlon Marais. Marlon Mariz lighting him on fire in that first round. It looked terrifying. It looked like Henry's in real danger of being KO'd by a far superior striker. I mean, Marlon looked huge. He looked like a beast. He's yeah. hitting him with these horrific leg kicks, but that motherfucker never skipped a beat. He just fired back up for the second round. Here we go, bitch! I'm right in your face. Yeah, it was crazy. Same you watch how tough fight. he is.
1: Yeah, the the, but, the second but DJ. He, to fight. see him
0: come back and start dominating Mariz mm. in the second round was almost like, what has happened? If someone put something in Marlon's drink, it's like, no, so is just so goddamn tough. He discourages you. Yeah. He freaks people
1: out. I think a lot of people canceled him out the second fight against Demetrius Johnson mm-hmm. with the calf kicks. Like he wow, was- when,
0: when he KO'd Wilson Hayes, I was like, wait a minute. Like now he looks like a karate master. Like what the fuck is this? Like he was fighting like a karate guy yeah. and lighting Wilson up. And I was like, This is crazy. And I was like, okay, this like when we're talking about Vitor learning kicks late in his career, this is just a super athlete. This mm-hmm. is what it is. And maybe the best super athlete we've ever had in the sport. Arguably, when you, we think about his physical accomplishments of going from Olympic gold medalist in in wrestling, then he went golden gloves boxing. You know that whole story about him living in the gym after he won the gold medal? Really? Won the gold medal in the Olympics. This is from Will Harris. Will Harris told me this. Um, and I think there's a video about it from Will Harris Productions. But he... Um, he won the fucking gold medal in the Olympics and then immersed himself in boxing and was living in a fucking boxing gym and sleeping in a boxing gym after winning the gold medal in the Olympics. Just drive. That motherfucker's
1: got blinders yeah. on. He's just going for working it. Working out some demons. There's some demons in Ooh. there that he's working out for sure.
0: Oh, whatever it is, keep, driving him. keep working them out. I yeah. love it. I love watching these extreme outliers, like guys who can do things like that. And you know, you know Luke Thomas right. Mm. Luke Thomas has a really had a really interesting take on it that I really um, appreciated and agreed with. Said you got to remember that Sohudo early in his career was it wasn't consistent. He was missing weight. You know, he didn't have the best performances. He wasn't the same. he, he didn't have the same focus. And then reinvents himself after the Demetrius Johnson loss and becomes a fucking demon in, in the gym. And works with all these. What, who are those people that came here? Is it Neuroforce? What is the the company that works with them that works Studo? on? Yeah, so. yeah, find the name of those folks. So ridiculously scientifically monitored testing mm-hmm. of everything he does. His workload is Neuroforce One. Neuroforce <laughs> One. So like these, there's fucking scientists working with him. Yeah. So scientists and elite trainers and wrestling coaches and kickboxing coaches, and then all of a sudden he emerges as this murderer. Right, like you see when he blasted away uh, T.J. Dillashaw, you're like, "Holy shit!" Mm. Like this, this Henry Cejudo is a different person than what you saw
1: at the beginning of his career. Like he's he's adaptable. You know, he's so adaptable. It's amazing, man. I mean, and that's the that's the thing that's that's beautiful about it as well is that I mean, he's not only adapted from one sport to another, but you can see how his style is adapted as 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 a martial artist as well.
0: He's still getting better. I mean, I guarantee you getting lit up by Marlon Marais in the first round is going to turn him into a better kickboxer. For sure. Because he knows what, what someone did to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows, like, wow, Jesus Christ, this guy, if guys, this guy could keep this up. You know, yeah. but he wilted under that pressure, that fucking psycho wrestler pressure, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's real shit, man. Yeah. That's Khabib pressure, that's Henry Cejudo pressure, those psycho wrestlers.
1: And you can only get that from grind. You wow. can only get that from, like, like forcing yourself through yep. those hours on the mat. Yeah. You can't build that any other way. And if and if you stop and you take some time off, that muscle weakens mm-hmm. you need to start building that strength back up again. You're
0: calcifying your your feelings. Oh. You're just I like becoming that. a psychopath. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> the best ones, when they're in there, man, they might as well
0: be a wolf. They just, just plow Calcified forward. Calcified your feelings. Yeah. I like it. There's like a primal breakthrough that you could see in some great fights where uh it's almost like they're down to just the animal and technique, just animal and technique, no more person. It's just savagery, mm-hmm. just wild exchanges and savagery, and one guy trying to finish the other guy,
1: and they're both getting rocked. You're like, holy fuck, this could go <laughs> any way. And even as even as people that appreciate the technique, there's still something instinctive about that. As we watch it, we're like. The, the, that primal feeling against yes. your heart racing
0: what makes everybody so excited when you yeah. see a fucking wild crazy war everybody gets fired up or they're like gripping like Adesanya like Adesanya Kevin Calvin Gaslam mm. holy shit that is the epitome of one of those fights yeah That what was about, just uh, Mike Perry wild ca- you see that yes <laughs> dude that's another one the, it's, Jesus Christ an yeah Great his fight. fucking nose was like a broken fire hydrant just spraying blood All over the back, and he still didn't tap. Yeah, and some people think he still won the fight.
1: Yeah, how? Yeah, what do you think? Just have to
0: go watch it again and try to score it. I think when whenever is a close fight, there's like sometimes I like the way a certain type of fighter, the way they uh, like. I prefer someone who's doing damage versus someone who takes someone down and doesn't do anything, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes you'll have a kickboxer who's lighting a guy up for like the first minute and a half of the round, but then the wrestler will take him down and maybe stay on top of him for three or four minutes, but don't do anything, and they'll give it to the wrestler. Yes. Which I'm like, okay, maybe. But it's. I think it's debatable, especially if it's 50-50. It's like two and a half minutes down, two and a half minutes up. Well, what happened in those two and a half minutes downs? Yes, you held position, but did you get it back mm-hmm. from what that guy was doing to you in the first two and a half minutes when he was chopping at your legs and kicking you in the body like I don't know where to score that yeah. and I think it's not really it's not really clear it's too it's subjective
1: not, no it's it's all it's all opinion based really I yes. mean, you know and it's, it's down to the interpretation of the person watching and this is how your own personal life experiences come into play if you're a sport jiu-jitsu guy you're going to see it different to a you know a, a boxing coach or something like that and the other thing as well when it comes to like the stats and you look at the total strikes landed significant strikes landed I always argue some strikes are far more significant than others sure like if you land 50 significant strikes in a in a round uh, sorry in in a fight and someone lands 10 significant strikes but those 10 significant strikes blow your blow your eye up break your nose knock you down one time it doesn't matter what the other significant strikes did if they weren't as significant and I think like with the Mike Perry uh, uh, Vicente Luque fight I would say that that knee was probably the most significant strike of the fight so I'm going to weigh that so much heavier than than any of the other significant strikes. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think we're living in this compromise of the 10-point must system, that we don't
1: have to be. What about the way that Pride used to do it, where they would score the person finishing stronger as uh, heavier? Because that's another argument Mm -hmm. that comes in. If you look at Mike Perry at the end of that third round, you go fourth round, fifth round, he's got nothing left. Like That nose is a mess. Mm -hmm. So then, I think instinctively I do that, and I try not to. I do try and score it per round, but I think instinctively, if somebody finishes stronger, which again, Yol Romero against Robert Whitaker, mm-hmm. second time around, he finished stronger than Whitaker by, you know, quite obviously. Yes. And I think that people naturally lean towards the person that is they've overcome the hump at the start of the fight. It's almost like you've you've got a round or two to you can kind of forgive the person, and they before they take over.
0: Right, well, here's a perfect example. The first round with Liz Karmuch and Valentina Shevchenko, Mm -hmm. that was a fairly uneventful round in terms of significant strikes landed, in terms of anybody establishing any dominance. You just got to see Valentina dealing with the movement and advancing and landing a little bit more than Liz, but that's it. Not much, mm-hmm. right? But that's a ten-nine round. For sure. But how could a round where they're scrapping and they're going at each other, but no one gets knocked down, but it's a fucking wild, chaotic, crazy round? How can that also be a ten-nine round?
1: Yeah, right? I hear you. I hear you. But then, but that's see, that's where that's where people's perspective of fights can can sometimes you know lean one way because if somebody has a really really big last round but they've lost the first two, mm-hmm. people are not seeing it as in as three sections of a of a fight to be scored if one person's two rounds ahead, sometimes, like, like, I, said, like I was saying instinctively, if someone has a, has a strong round, you score towards that person because it was more impactful what they did to their opponent. Yes. So if you take someone down and control them and hold them, even if you do that for four minutes of a round, but for one minute of that round, you get lit up against the fence, I'm always going to go towards the person that was doing the lighting up because yes. that was more significant and more impactful on me as a viewer. If I'm choosing a tribal leader... I'm going for the guy that had the one minute of success on the feet (laughs) as opposed to the guy that was holding him down for four.
0: Yeah, unless the guy who holds him down eventually mountains him like from Game of Thrones and crushes (laughs) his fucking head with his thumb through his eyeballs. (laughs) That was terrifying. That was terrifying. Um, Yeah, I see your point, I guess. Um, But I I think for sure there there should be another category of, of impactful strikes. Instead of just significant strikes and total strikes there should probably be rocked Like mm-hmm. he got rocked like he got like your legs go and you know, and you're covering up
1: But then is a knockdown automatically a 10-8 round?
0: No, I don't think 10-8 is right yeah. I don't think 10 is right. I think we, ha- we should have a comprehensive system that recognizes the fact that there's near submissions there's a, a leg kick that barely touches and there's a leg kick that cripples your leg they're, they should be scored differently. We should have like actual numbers that are attributed to these things. If we want to have an accumulation of things at the end, how much should we count total strikes? How much should we count submission attempts? How much should we count near submission attempts? What about submission attempts where you're literally saved by the bell, which does happen, mm. Right. You're literally like locked up, ready to fucking tap, and the like. Um, Jens Pulver BJ Penn. That's the first one. That that's comes a to good one. Mind. That's a good one that comes to mind. I was going to go with Dylan Danis's first MMA fight. Okay. Didn't? Wasn't the first one? Didn't he lock up a Dars, and the guy got out of it, and then he caught him with a Dars in the second round? Is that what happened? Or am I think? Am I misconstruing him with somebody else? I don't remember. But it's that. What I'm going with is there's moments where you go, this guy is fucked. And then the buzzer rings. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, he survived. But let's see what happens if he comes back. I want to say
1: it's Dylan Dance, but I, now I'm questioning myself. I've seen too many fights. Yeah. So, what, what about if they're knocked and rocked right at the end of the fight? Like uh, Frankie Edgar against Gray Maynard, first round.
0: That's interesting, too. How much is that worth? Right? What if like,
1: imagine if the corner had an opportunity to add an extra minute to the round. <laughs> <laughs> extra minute. Go. That'd god
0: well how about with k1 or glory when they get to three rounds if it's a draw they go one more round and everybody it. goes
3: fuck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, i love it they thought it was it.
1: over you're gonna sit back and rest right and then pushes the out. fighters to be more decisive though in the in the first three rounds yes is
0: it did dylan Dennis win his first fight in the first round or second round uh, First. okay so I'm, I'm, I'm dumb so the first one was a leg lock yes so it wasn't him. It was somebody that landed a fucking Darce, like a sick Darce at the end of the first round. And I want to say it, it wasn't in Bellator. Now that I think about it, it was in the UFC. That was a leg lock. And Dylan Dennis, who's a top of the food chain jujitsu practitioner, mm. he's. he's uh, There's so many guys that if you're going to go to the ground with a guy
1: like that, you're in some deep shit. For sure. He's fucking dangerous. Yeah. He's out in New York at the moment. The My, my uh, YouTube guys are out there videoing with him. He's. In a real good place. Oh. His, his interview was fascinating. He's, he's a lot more – people see the bravado. Oh, he's being silly. You know, he's I think he's fun. great. I think he's, you know, he's a very yeah. down-to-earth guy, and I think he's, uh, he's just on a, on a, on a journey. into. He? I think he's with the Meow Brothers at the moment. Oh, is Montel Jackson?
0: No, I don't think so. That's first-round Darce. I don't think that's it because uh, – oh, god damn it. Now that it wasn't, and I know it wasn't Dylan Dance, I'm trying to say, what fucking jiu guy was it that slapped on a Darce and then finished it, the next round finished it with a Darce? Tony? Maybe it was Ferguson.
3: There's also uh,
0: uh, uh, eh, a... At- it's him not going to... This is not going to work. Okay. I'm so. never going to remember now. Because <laughs> it's fairly recent. But there's, you know... That when when someone's locked up, my, we've gotten way off track. But my point was, if someone's locked up in a submission and the buzzer ends, you, you know that guy was fucked. He was fucked. He's turning purple, and then the buzzer rings, and your guy has to let go. And you're like, ooh, is that a ten eight? That should be worth a lot. Ten seven. I don't know, man. It's like you're you're a couple <laughs> seconds away from death. Yeah. Like, that seems like it should be worth a lot. You trying what to find it sell? for me? Um, who is
2: it? It says Woodley drops till, scores second round Darce No, choke.
0: no. That was one of the most, like, obvious Darce chokes you'll ever see. Woodley just smushed him. Yeah. He smushed him. But he He's was, so goddamn strong dude. that, like, you could see that Darce coming a mile away, and he was not stopping it. <laughs> he just ran that fucking arm through and clamped it on his bicep and crushed him. I mean, he didn't try to be sneaky with it. He was just dominant with it. It was a... That's a, a great example of like the top of the who's that?
2: Dennis Bermudez remains mm, perfect. With I, do first not, round darse. I do not. I'm UFC not. Phoenix.
0: How long ago is this?
2: Mm, uh, I was hoping it pop up faster than this. <laughs> 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 what year is this? This is February.
0: Um, could be. This is UFC Phoenix. Anyway, yeah. all right. Doesn't matter. The point being, if you do, if you do get caught mm-hmm. like that, if you do get caught like that, and the buzzer saves your life. That should be worth a lot. It's got to be. It's
1: got it's to be, gotta scored be worth a lot. lot. For sure. For it's sure. Not it's not the
0: to same to as, like, how's that 10 9? Like, how do you get a 10 9 out of that? That sounds crazy if there's a 10 9 just like Karmouche and Valentina Shevchenko in the first round where it's fairly uneventful. Yep. You
1: know? And then you've, got a, then you've got one round where the fighter nearly gets finished and saved by the bell. And then their opponent can edge out the next two rounds by stuffing takedowns and fighting defensively. And yeah. then they win on decision.
0: Yeah. I really think that there's the. There's room for growth. There's mm-hmm. room for improvement. And uh, I think that if someone developed some sort of a more comprehensive system, like what is a takedown actually worth? Why do we have to stick to this 10-9 stuff? It's like, I guess. It's like, oh, I'm going this way or I'm going that way. Let's see your work. Like what are you deciding it on? Are you deciding it on, okay, I have takedowns versus submission attempt and with the accumulation of leg strikes, I feel like an advantage was gained, and even though much wasn't done with the takedown, it did defensively stop the, the attack that he was getting on his feet, and he was able to impose his will upon him, so I'm going to give him 10-9. We can go, ooh, yeah. we can talk about this, and experts can sit around and try to figure out what, what, what makes sense to people who have been studying martial arts their whole life. What do you think is worth more? Who do you think won that round? Like forget about the ten nine. If you had to score it on the Dan Hardy system, who do you think won that round? And if we did something like that, I think we'd get an, at least an idea what the territory is. But we're confined by ten nine, or ten eight, or ten seven. It's like, well, who decides? Who decides? Why is it ten seven? This one isn't, and that one is. Well, show me. Show me what it is. Show but, me what happened.
1: But then we we could have it. I see the, the the benefit in the ten nine thing is it's it makes it more of an instinctive thing. Like, for me, like a takedown should be its own reward. Like, if you take someone down, you've put them in a position where you want them. That's like octagon control to me. Mm-hmm. So, like, controlling the center should be scored just as highly as a, as a takedown. The takedown's got to lead to something for
0: Oh, me. I disagree. Because I think it's easier to take control of the center than it is to get a takedown.
1: I don't agree. Honestly, I don't. For how long, though? Fo- footwork in MMA is is almost primitive, really. I mean, with, like, there are certain people that stand out that got really good footwork, but for the most part, there's so, many, so much bad decision-making by people not understanding how to corral someone against the fence.
0: This is an example of why I don't agree. Tyron Woodley versus Wonderboy. Right? Tyron Woodley let Wonderboy control the center for most of the fight.
1: But that's like playing guard to me. If you if you choose to be backed against the fence and choose to counter strike, you're losing until you win a lot of the time.
0: But not as much as being taken down. No, no. Because no, Tyron no. wind up doing what he yeah. wanted to do, which is catch Wonder Boy in between these movements and land a big shot. And he did it in both fights and he hurt him in both fights. But both fights were a similar strategy of waiting for Wonder Boy to fuck up and not a whole lot of volume and definitely don't charge at that guy. Yeah no t- guy's two good are,
1: counters takedowns are definitely worth more than controlling the center I don't, I don't don't mean that to be misunderstood but what what i'm saying is that the the goal is the same thing if you control the center you are putting someone in a position where you can strike them if you take someone down you're putting them in a position where you can hit them or submit them yeah like, but
0: they're so removed cuz when you're controlling the center you could still get fucked up like you, you're not controlling the guy like, if you're moving forward and you're controlling the center, I mean, you're definitely forcing the action, but people get knocked out that way all the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, do you remember when Jeremy Horn or uh, Jeremy Stevens, was it Dennis as he caught with that flying knee? Do you remember that? Yeah, well, he was getting pressed up against the cage, yeah. and then boom, he explodes out of nowhere, flying. That shit happens for sure. But it, then, like Robbie Lawler, Melvin Manhoef, you know, yes, fights against the mm-hmm. fence, rolling. Oh, yeah, well, that's com- one of the great ones. For sh- like one of, of course, the great ones. Yeah. but like, so, so it can't, ca- it can't be as worth as much. But the th- as thing is, like, so,
1: save you, save your playing guard, right? If you if you've got somebody in your guard and you're you play 15 minutes of throwing submissions up and nothing comes off, mm-hmm. and the other person sits in your guard and lands a few punches, the person on the top is probably going to win the fight. Because they were sitting in your guard, defending submissions. And the, you know, the defense part is its own reward. So sure. they were in the top position. So for me, I always kind of think that like playing guard is very similar to counter-striking. And I'm, I was a counter-striker all the way through my career, pretty much. So m- my feeling was that I was losing the fight until I landed the strikes to win it. Mm. And, and the idea of controlling the octagon doesn't necessarily mean you're controlling the center. It means you're controlling your opponent. So you you're had controlling-
0: this m- mindset. That's an interesting mindset for a counter-striker, probably very productive, right? Because you put yourself like, to the point where you have to get it back. Like I, you're already yeah. losing.
1: I'm at a deficit because mm. I'm giving ground up. Yes. But the benefit that I'm getting in giving ground is that I'm making them walk into the places that I want them to step, mm. right? Yeah. So, so like if, I, if I'm backing up straight and I'm just being pushed against the fence, I'm not controlling the center of the octagon. But if I'm backing up and pivoting off and catching them with the left hook, I'm walking them onto that shot. Right. I would just say that as a counter striker, I would have to be more significant in my output. Just like if you were a guard player, you would have to be more significant in your output than you would if you were in the top position. That makes sense,
0: um, and it it certainly makes sense that there's a benefit for getting someone to fight your kind of fight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's there's so many variables that are really in play, and some of them are dependent upon. Maybe you don't really understand what their game plan was. Maybe the game plan was fight a really unpredictable fight, something you would never expect from someone with their style. Mm -hmm. Or maybe someone has, like, maybe some hidden skill that we didn't realize they were that good at. And so, like, remember when Nick Diaz fought Robbie Lawler? Mm -hmm. Everybody thought Nick Diaz is a jiu-jitsu guy, right? Knocked him out with a jab.
3: He hit him with kind
0: of like a weird right hook, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But it was... He was beating his ass before that. That was what was different about our expectations. Our expectations were Nick Diaz was this really well-respected jiu-jitsu player who was real tough and young and uh, had had some real good fights. Um, I think he started – did he start in WAEC? Is that where he started? started in some smaller organizations. That fight with Robbie Lola was early, though, like UFC
1: 37 or, Very like, or something early. like that.
0: I'll never forget that fight, man. He came out and he was like, Stockton, motherfucker. And Robbie Lawler was like, What? What is happening here? (laughs) (laughs) He was like, What the fuck is going on? But he outboxed him. That was the thing that was exciting about it. It's like, Wow. Like, we thought this guy was just a jujitsu guy. And meanwhile, what he's doing is he's coming out talking mad shit to Robbie Lawler, talking shit to him while he's punching him in the face. Mm
1: -hmm. Like, that was something that, that I that I lo- love about the Diaz brothers though, and that's like they've never really had to implement wrestling into their game too much because they've right. used pressure mm-hmm. and boxing to force people to shoot on them.
0: Both have wicked guards.
1: Wicked. They both have wicked
0: wicked jitsu wicked guards. You know, Nick Diaz is a super respected jiu-jitsu black belt, as is Nate. Like in the Jiu Jitsu community, they're like you know, they're recognized as being really high level. So they'll just keep punching you in the face <laughs> until you
1: decide to go to the ground. I'd love to tap into some of that knowledge, get their perspectives on the on the sport and the scoring. You know what I mean? Well,
0: I like the fact that they're picking their fights now. Like Nate takes some time off and takes a big fight. You know, does whatever he wants. Like I like that. I like that he can do that. That mm. he can. Just, and I'm very excited about this fight. This fight with Pettis is fascinating because, first of all, Nate Diaz. He's acting like a maniac. He's smoking weed during the open workouts. He's smoking weed during open workouts. I mean, his brother was suspended for like a fucking year for smoking weed back in the dark ages, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, yeah. It's like a long time. And he didn't fight for ages because he wouldn't pay the fine, right? Dude, exactly. It's so stupid. And meanwhile, the Diaz brothers are right. So here you see Nate Diaz... That's the CBD, open workout. Right? Yeah, just CBD, bro. It's just health. <laughs> it's just be- he's getting high as fuck. That's what he's doing. You can do that. You can do that now. As long as you're not high the day of the fight, your <sighs> levels will be fine. I used to stop for weeks before my fights. It was awful. I had to back then, right? Oh, yeah. Look at him.
1: But he's he's getting so high it might stay with him for a couple months. Yeah, he might fail the test. Well, what was it when imagine when he uh, did fail the test now remember. after this? I- imagine, remember when um, <laughs> when Nick fought uh, Gomi and he had like six times the <laughs> amount in his system <laughs> they he must, said he had to be high when he fought he Gobi. had a pop brownie in the back yeah. or something before he walked out dude that was an amazing fight he caught him with a go go plata
0: Woo. Unbelievable. let's realize how goddamn good nick diaz amazing. is at everything yeah submissions you know fucking remember when he when he fought cyborg just got him to the ground submitted him stood with him for a little bit and said okay that's
1: enough yeah and the Paul daily fight that's the one that dude! always stands out to me like He I, took him I, into I never, the jungle. I never would have thought that Nick Diaz was going to knock Paul out. He took him into the jungle. Oh, he ridiculous.
0: took him into the deepest water. Mm. He just said, let's just go to war. Let's go to crazy war. But people don't do that with Paul Davis No his way. His ridiculous. He's terrifying. He tenderized the side of my head oh for my many God. years in the gym. Dude, I can't imagine getting hit by that guy. That guy, his left hand
1: is preposterous. Huge hands as well. Yeah, we're talking about hand structure. I mean, he's got massive hands.
0: I couldn't imagine him not having massive hands. He has big feet, too. He's a wide tank of a man. Yeah. But that left hand is just one of the best weapons in the sport. Yeah. That's
1: one of those game changer weapons where he clips people and you see him like, whoa. I remember being in his corner one time. Um, He was fighting Xavier Fupapakam on Cage Rage. And uh, we'd had a late night the night before, as we usually did with Paul Daly's fight nights, because he's a bit wild. Um, so we'd been up till like 4am Friday night, Saturday, we got over to the fights and he was just, he wasn't focused on the fights at all. He'd had some kind of noodle pot for breakfast and nothing else. And he was just like, his, his head just wasn't there. He's just, you know, he was one of those kind of guys that sometimes he would just show up to fight at the moment that it was required. And, uh, uh, Professor X, he was like a six foot two tie boxer. I remember that
0: remember guy. Remember him? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Real long rangey guy. Very powerful talented. dude. Yeah. Yeah this uh yeah it was yeah and he got paul clinched and he was nearing him and he was hitting him with all kinds of stuff and out of nowhere just this left hook just came creeping over the top and oh, and he just fell like a plank
0: he knew he could yeah. do that to people too and yeah. knows he can when he hit lorenz larkin with that punch i was like jesus because lorenz is a very high level striker mm. like you remember when lorenz ran over near magni yeah and you're like holy shit and he throws that oblique kick to the body like a side kick And you're like, whoa, this guy's hitting him with some shit. And Mm. he's swift on the feet, man. Like Lorenz is like, he's got a very unusual style of footwork and movement. And it's like a lot of guys, you see them trying to decipher it as he's coming at you. And then boom, the shots are coming. So to see him get clipped by Paul and get really hurt and stopped, you realize like, wow, that's how hard fucking
1: Paul Daly hits. Yeah. And you underestimate how long his arms are as well. He's got a unique build. His waist's like this big. He's like he's built like a Dorito, and he's got really wide shoulders and really long arms. That's where all that power's coming from, yeah. that leverage. Were you shocked by his fight with Michael Venom Page? Um, no, not really. Uh, you know, I, th- I think... Paul can, be, you know, Paul can play the game when he needs to play the game. He knows when he's taking risks and when he's not, and you know there was a lot on the line for that. And, oh, for sure. You know, but that's the one thing that he always complained about. Yeah, was when guys took him down. Ego can have a say in these things sometimes, though, you know, and and I think a loss as over a bad performance mm-hmm. is is much worse for Paul when it comes to MVP. He would have never heard the last of it. We occupied the same small bit of land. You know. It's, uh, you can't go very far in England right. without, you know, without hearing about that kind of stuff.
0: He just wanted to get the win. Yeah.
1: I wonder if, uh, yeah,
0: I see what you're saying, and I like that he fought that way. I like that anybody fights in a way that they can win because if someone can't defend that, I want to know. And it's not because I want one person to win over the other person. Even if it's a bad fight. I mm-hmm. like when styles clash and you figure out, Oh, look at this, if that guy just does that to you, guess what? Now people know that they could do that to you and
1: other people who are better at doing that are gonna try to do that to you. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. It uh, makes the sport fascinating. For sure. But I would say that Paul didn't get into the fight with the intention of fighting like that. Really? I, I think I think the takedowns were were a part of his game plan, but I think he he planned on doing a lot more damage on the ground.
0: That guy is so fucking slippery standing up. Michael Venom Page, yeah. he's so slippery. That movement is so crazy to deal with. That yeah. karate point-fighting background,
1: they are so good at blitzing. I just don't feel like you can get close to him. It yeah. feels like he's so far away.
0: And if you try to move into the danger zone, they can get to you before you can get to them. And especially yeah. Michael Page, who has those long arms and legs. And he's so good at keeping his hands down.
1: Mm-hmm. So you don't know where shit's coming from, too. It's all, everything's coming from weird angles. And the confidence plays in as yes. well. Because he's so confident in what he's capable of, he fights loose, which makes him faster.
0: He hasn't fought since the Lima fight, right? No.
1: Yeah, that, that was, was bad. Lima's a murderer.
0: He might be one of the scariest guys in the 170-pound division across the board in 1FC, UFC. Lima's one of the scariest guys. For sure. He's boom, boom, out go the lights. That <laughs> motherfucker, he puts people to sleep. You know, he does. Yeah. He's, he's fuck. When he knocked out Koroshkoff, I was like, Jesus. He knocks out everybody, man. Yeah. And his rematch with Rory is going to be
1: very interesting. I just always worry about Rory's nose. You know. Yeah. That is always on my mind when he's fighting because that they just don't heal. They just never heal properly. How about Michael Perry's? I don't know. Man. Was, That's was gonna that? be a long time off. How he was, was he was be, on my yeah. flight on the way home and I mean his eyes was like swollen shut and stuff. He was having <laughs> a having a rough time. But yeah. He
0: but didn't he get surgery while he was in Uruguay?
1: Yeah. They fixed it while they were there. Oh, so you left after he had gotten surgery? I too? stayed for a day after to get oh. some get some rest. Jet lag was killing me. So,
0: Good for you. Yeah. How is Uruguay? Is it interesting?
1: Yeah, it was. It was cool. I mean, the fans were great. You know, they, uh, they had, we had one fighter on the card from Uruguay, um, Garagori, Eduardo Garagori, who was, I mean, he just marched forward and just tried to, you know, tried to bring the fight to his opponent. He was fighting Bandanai. Um, he was backing up, trying to counter-strike. But the fans loved it. You know, they were, they were rowdy. They were quiet when the fights were going on, which was kind of weird because the, mm. only, the only fans that I've experienced that do that are the Japanese fans. You know, oh. the, when, You know, when the fight's going on, they sit quietly, they watch, they applaud when there's a position change and... You know, wow. There were some good fights on the card as well. The the uh, the Howley and Piva knee as well from um oh what's his opponent's name? Bontarin. Adria Ud- mm. Bontarin caught him with a clean knee and opened him up a lot of stitches.
0: Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh the jitsu guy. That uh the middleweight guy.
1: Oh yeah, Adolfo Vieira. Jesus yeah. Christ. That guy good. Terrifying. Oh, yeah, Pi is good. I- I'm I'm surprised that um I'm surprised that he didn't press forward more to be honest. I was expecting to be more aggressive because like Vieira is good but he's he's like 5 6 fights into his career mm-hmm. you can still you can still bully him a little bit because he might be unsure of himself in the striking
0: a little bit but he did land a hard jab early in the first round and i think that like woke him up a little bit like mm. he's got heavy hands but the thing is his squeeze is fucking outrageous yeah His squeeze is so outrageous. When he wrapped up that head and arm triangle, I was like, no one's getting out of that. Like, there's some dudes that do that head and arm choke like that where you see their back look like a fucking some alien creature with all the striations. You're like, oh my God, no one's getting out of that. Like, you're going to sleep. He's going to cut your head off. Like, that's horrific. Mm. Those guys that have that. Incredible jujitsu with incredible physical strength, like the Jacques Paul, Paul Harris, yeah, those guys who have the crazy jiu-jitsu but also ridiculous strength as well are always the scariest.
1: Yeah, look at the size of Gordon Ryan now in comparison.
0: To Jesus, he he's so big.
1: He's, he's a monster. He's terrifying. <laughs> keep,
0: keep Jeff Davinsky way the fuck <laughs> away from that guy. But that is the thing about jujitsu is like some of these things have testing and people do have tested positive. It's been like a huge disgrace.
1: But the ones that don't have testing, these dudes, it's the Wild West out there. They're it's running rampant. I remember Jeff Monson. <laughs> I remember that monster walking around like he'd just been chiseled out. of meat. Yeah. He was a goddamn
0: Fantastic Four character that came to life. Yeah. When Monson was in uh, a real Abu Dhabi. Lanarkist. There he is right there. Oh, jacked. The around. kid's jacked.
1: Yeah. yeah. I watched him on that. Um, the Beast. Oh, what was it uh, a quintet out in Vegas mm-hmm. and he rolled through three guys on that and, Dude, this and is P- amazing. Polaris as well he's done Polaris a few times over in the UK he's, he's a, just a monster
0: well it all comes out of that John Donaher uh, Henzo Gracie school What a wizard Eddie that Cummings guy is. John Donaher all those guys Gary Tonin Nicky Ryan Gordon Ryan those are that's some of the cream of the crop of, of young jiu-jitsu players mm. these guys are all savages and I'm really excited that Tonin is now in MMA you know because he's doing really well in mma he's undefeated and he's he's fucking people up standing up too yeah he's getting better at standing up but when it goes to the ground good fucking luck
1: right good luck and and i think people would underestimate john Danaher as an mma coach as well you know the experience that he's had like his his knowledge of mma is is outstanding i I spent some time talking to him when i was up in montreal at, at tristar and like the the way he he you know unpacks things and breaks things down and and not only not only breaks them down for himself to understand but for him to be able to communicate that easily to other people for them to understand is like i mean that it takes a special kind of coach to be able to do that well he's a he's a a
0: really really interesting human Mm. like if you just sit down and talk to him he's one of the most well thought out people i think i've ever yeah. had the pleasure of having a conversation with he just thinks things through and irons out all his points before he ever expresses them so when he expresses something to you he's like let me ask you this yeah. and,
1: he's like, a, and, he's a <laughs> and he's a lunatic and he's a lunatic, lunatic. <laughs> there's there's, oh, yeah. there's an edge to him for sure i'll never forget a, uh, s- him sitting in a club in montreal like gsp's there and all of his mates and they're all like dressed sharp and stuff and they were like talking to the girls he and had a rash guard on course he did <laughs> <laughs> a rash guard a paddy pack and a pair of shorts and he was just sitting in the club just yeah. people don't understand
0: john Donaher is famous for wearing a rash guard to a wedding <laughs> but he's a
1: savant I've he's a special that. individual you know he's this he's he's on a different frequency if
0: you never wore a rash guard to a wedding my apologies <laughs> but i wouldn't put it past you yeah <laughs> no, no he did i'm sure he did i'm, sure, he I'm did. sure that's a true story i mean he is a savant he's um What he is is uh, I think he's singularly focused on like transitions and attacks and patterns in jiu-jitsu and how to improve upon uh, various athletes success and games and he's created these pathways and these guys that believe in him also happen to be super dedicated and very talented and then you have that entire Henzo Gracie team which is just one of the best lineages of jiu-jitsu in all of martial arts and if you look at what came out of that, Henzo Gracie? You know, you have Matt Sarah came out of there. Uh, there's there's been so many high level competitors in a million different martial arts organizations. Henzo is like old school Gracie. I mean, he's from the root. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the purest jujitsu you're going to find in the world. So he's got. I mean, it's just. That's a, an amazing pool of talent on top of having a wizard like Donaher in there fucking with things and fixing things and finding, finding new pathways and how to, how to counter things and how to, how to switch things around on people. And they have a bunch of systems like back-taking systems, leg-locking systems, and it's super, super effective. And the way he describes it is he's able to cut years out of the learning curve of these guys
1: by addressing problems that come up before they come up. He's, I mean, he's proven that, though. The, mm-hmm. the, you know, the speed in which Gordon Ryan and Nikki Ryan as well. You know, I was, and Eddie uh, Cummings. Uh, oh, Eddie and, Cummings, and, of course. And,
0: and Gary Tonen and, and for sure, they all learn from each other, for sure. I mean, Eddie is also a big innovator yeah. in leg locking and, and understanding these systems and innovating and coming up with new entries and new transitions. All those guys are. It's like everyone has their own little piece of ingredient that they're putting into the stew, but the result is really exceptional in terms of success rates. Like they stood out in a world where everyone's trying to kill everybody with chokes and arm bars, and everybody knows chokes and arm bars, and they stood out like significantly,
1: yeah. But was you know the the thing with Danaher as well is to be able to sit on the mat and watch all of those high level guys work against each other like mm-hmm. he's seeing the patterns across the mat. Yes, you know this this is I wish I'd have done this earlier on in my career. Like I watched fights as a fan, but then the further into my career, the more I was specific about who I watched.
0: Mm. I only
1: wanted to watch the fighters that I felt like I was going to benefit from. Interesting. Whereas now, because I watch everything, I like I see the patterns and I can imagine because Dana's Danaher's on the mat all the time, watching all of these guys, every day. He's seeing the patterns in Jiu Jitsu all the time. The the same positions that get exchanged over and over again and, you know, the different outcomes for each one and he just seems to have one of those kind of brains that just Absorbs everything adds it into his filtration system Mm. and then figures out the the more high percentage stuff and then focuses that as he's as his syllabus
0: And what's really interesting is if he wasn't injured as badly as he is I mean, he probably would have gone on to compete and maybe not been as good of a coach. Yes That's one of the more Amazing pieces to that puzzle. He was a rugby player fucked his knee up early They fixed it, but they didn't fix it right, and it was always a problem. And he was always like kind of leaning on it in a weird way, and it fucked his hip up. So he had to get a hip replacement. Now he's going to get a knee replacement. And he's a guy known for teaching people how to rip people's legs apart. It's kind of
1: crazy. Yeah, but he's—I mean—he's a unique individual, though. Yeah, and and I think that is the way that his brain works is. It's perfect for jujitsu, mm-hmm. and that's why you know that's why his brain is fed so much by jujitsu. Yeah. And you see him, you see him on the side of the mat. You know, he's sitting there coaching his guys, and it's just it's so calm and it's so well delivered. And he he always says their full name as well. That's mm. something else I quite <laughs> notice, which I mean I quite like it, but it stands LCD out. Right yeah. There, so.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I think it's so important to have these unique characters for us. A is another one Mm. to have these uh, unique intellectual characters that are involved in the pursuit of people beating the fuck out of each other. Yeah, it's
1: very interesting because we've we've, not even seen the crossover of the fighters that are going to become those people yet either. I mean, you know, uh, Dwayne Ludwig is a good example Mm -hmm. of, of one of the first to really make that crossover. Yeah, but like you look at the way that Ludwig fought and the way that he coaches his fighters is so very different. Yeah, he
0: jokes around about it. Yeah, but I yeah. like that
1: because that shows the evolution. Like mm-hmm. if, if I, when I'm coaching my fighters, I wouldn't coach them the same way that I used to <laughs> fight. You know, well,
0: I, it's got to vary a little bit, right, depending upon body size mm-hmm. and style and what strengths you come into, with, especially in MMA. But what Wayne, what Dwayne is doing is sort of like learning what he learned from everybody, watching everybody, but not what he did. Which yes. is crazy. Yeah. But he's obviously teaching you stuff that he knows how to do and stuff that he did do, but that style of footwork and switching stances and movement that you see like TJ employ and a lot of his other students employ, like Dwayne's got that like written out mm-hmm. he's one of those guys that has a real system like if you look at his book you're like oh my god it's a crazy person <laughs> it's just like it's been a great way in a great yeah. way it's all like he's got everything written out like all the combinations and all the movements and all the this is not like free for all and just do what feels good like no he's got like patterns he's following and he puts those patterns on you and you you see the success rate from his students learning this thing I mean was he had a big effect on team alpha male for the brief amount of time that he was there he saw some good results from some of those guys mm. he's just uniquely obsessed with teaching people how to strike correctly
1: and that's where that's where I think there's a very fine line between like programming a fighter and being a computer programmer you know you right. get all those systems in place and then that's why like uh Faraz, as you as you just mentioned and GSP they had such a good relationship because it always felt to me like Faraz was like sitting in the corner with his with his control pad <laughs> just kind of playing the game and because he because he'd programmed his fighter so well it was just a it was pure it was a responsive thing same with Matt Hume and uh, DJ yes and like obviously there's there's some level of freedom and creativity for the fighter but they've always got that backup that person in the corner that can tell them something and they know exactly what they mean and they just apply it and it works you know, and, and like those those systems coming into play and all the codes that are coming in now is it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting development. I think I think th- those kind of fighters will always fall short to the the likes of the Adesanya's and the and the this Anderson Silvers that can play the game inside the octagon. Mm. Like the the thing, like Anderson Silva, I think the most underestimated knockout of his, and it was a great knockout, but still people don't really fully appreciate it. Was the Vitor Belfort front kick to the face? Because Vitor was expecting the low kick, and he brings his shin up to block the low kick as he gets kicked in the face. And if you watch it from the opposite angle over Vitor's shoulder, you can see Anderson's looking at his lead leg. Like that—that that is so underappreciated because you—you you don't see those cells from the replays. You don't see the glances and the looks and the the shifts of the body weight and you know the the nuances of the fight. That I mean, sometimes I watch these replays ten, fifteen times from different angles, and all of a sudden I'll see something and like a light bulb moment i love those moments but yeah
0: anderson had many of those moments in his career where you recognize that he had seen a pattern and then he just struck on that pattern and hit pay dirt
1: mm. and you're like jesus christ yeah it's like max holloway does it now mm-hmm. like that first round is like his download round yeah you know he, he gathers he gathers information he studies their patterns and that's why if you look at max holloway's stats his first round his percentage of success is low and his output's low but then, as his success rate increases, so does his output. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like I don't know any other fighter that does that. No, he's brilliant in that,
0: and his output is preposterous. His output is just so outrageous, but not as outrageous as, Col- as Colby Covington's. Colby Covington might have the most outrageous output in the sport. Yeah, it's outrageous. What about, just, what about him and Usman,
1: though? Do, do you they're think both Usman outrageous.
0: Like, it's all who's the better wrestler. Yes. Who's the better wrestler and who has more power and who can keep that up for the longest? Because Kobe can keep that shit up for five rounds. He's done an, an amazing job of getting people to dismiss him because they think he's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> with, his, with his MAGA hat and all the trash talk that he does. It's fucking brilliant, man. Because what he's done is just insult everybody and anybody. Get a lot of people talking about him yep. and then fuck people up. So it's like, whoa, this is a crazy combination because it fucks with their head. They don't want to lose to this guy. They don't want to hear him talk shit after he beats your ass. He's going to still talk shit. Mm-hmm. Fuck. There's a slight, I don't know, depending upon the person, but at it, it least slight burden and experiencing that from a person, it might be a big burden. Maybe you're one of those people that has a hard time getting fucked with, and you can't. It keeps you up at night, and then it's like a maybe. Maybe it diminishes your performance twenty percent, maybe thirty percent. Yeah. And Kobe doesn't get tired. He yeah. keeps coming. It's terrifying. Robbie Lawler just kept bobbing and weaving and hoping for these openings that were never there. Uh-huh. And then Kobe's just on you. He was punching some ridiculous amount, like one every 2.4 seconds or some crazy shit. He, he broke the work rate,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Against Robbie Lawler. I know. But Robbie, just, you know, it, it, like that first round in particular, when he's up against the fence and he wasn't even hand fighting the chokes, like that, it looked like he was kind of coasting for a couple of rounds with the intention of getting started later. Mm. but then I just I just think the, the, the intensity of, of Colby just burned him out faster than he expected.
0: I think when you're an explosive guy like Robbie is, where he fires fucking hurricane speed bombs at you, just and when he does that, he's going 100%. Mm. 100%. Colby never goes 100%. If you watch him, he's punching like 70%, 60%, 70%, 60%, and he just stays on you, stays on you. Very Nick Diaz-like in Diaz's early days, like when Diaz fought Frank Shamrock, perfect example. Like he just puts that pace on you, keeps talking shit and puts that pace on you. And he's hitting you a lot. So you're always tight. Like you're always tightening up, tightening up. And it's just draining your battery. Yeah. And you don't want to lose to this guy because he's talked so much shit. <laughs> and you're like, well, he's talked so much shit, but when I get a hold of him, guess what? When you get a hold of him, he's great. That's the problem. The problem is all those things that fuck with you, plus he's a great fighter. So the meanness, the shit-talking, all the, the MAGA stuff, the strippers, the, cr- the cringe, you're like, oh, my God, right? And then on top of it, the fucking output inside the octagon. You're like, shit, he's doing all that, and he's fucking me up. He might have fucked me up even if he didn't do all that. But he does all that, and I don't want to lose to him, and he's fucking me up. It's like, God damn.
1: Do you think there's a point where Colby thinks, you know, at any point during his training camp, like, I've stacked the odds against myself here. I I had that moment before Marcus Davis where I thought to myself if I lose here I'm gonna like a I'm gonna look really fucking stupid.
0: I think that Colby is Doing a brilliant job of playing a bad guy like pro wrestling style And I think he didn't used to do that early in his career He was a hardworking guy who just went out there and fought his ass off But people didn't give a shit and they weren't giving him the credit that he deserves and so he turned heel and from that He's become the interim welterweight champion, he's one of the most talked about guys in the sport, he took on a character, that's what I think, and I think that character is super successful at fucking with people, you know, I mean, and he can fucking fight, man, yeah, he can. you can't underestimate that, that kind of cardio, that kind of cardio is crazy, to be able to do that for five rounds, that's bananas, that, that pace is insane,
1: yeah. And Robbie Lawler's strong as well. I he's mean, a just bull. Such a difficult person to hold down. I wonder whether I wonder whether Robbie Lawler left some of his training camp. You know whether he left some of his effort in the gym. Like, I would imagine Robbie Lawler's the kind of guy that still trains like he's in his twenties. Like he's like on it every day. Well, you know?
0: maybe or maybe they trained together, and when they trained together, Colby was getting the best of it. I mean, I think they did train together at American Top Team. You know, maybe Colby knew that he could out-wrestle him. He knew if he just stayed on him, he would break him and out-wrestle him. I mean, when someone has a wrestling advantage, it goes back to this one more time. When someone has a wrestling advantage, that is a big deal when you start getting tired and this guy has better technique than you and he's not as tired as you are because he's fighting more efficiently and then he gets a hold of you and they're like, fuck him on my back. And then you're like, God damn it. And then you try to get back up, but you can't. And the bell's over, and you get back up. And you go, "I got to keep this guy from taking me down. And then, boom, he takes you down to Dan. Yeah. Again, he keeps punching you on the feet. He keeps hitting you and making you move backwards. And you're just looking to land this big bomb, but there's never an opening for it. And you think he's going to slow down, but he never does.
1: So Colby against Khabib, but a catchweight. What do you reckon? Ooh. Who outpaces the other one?
0: Dude, they, they could get Ted Nugent to sing the national anthem. <laughs> America! Fuck yeah! Um, I think that's a, an amazing fight if Khabib ever did want to fight at 170. I think him versus Usman would also be an amazing fight. Mm. I want to see Colby and Usman. I mean, that's the fight, right? I mean, and I'll, I also think if you're going to have an interim champion, you should treat that fighter like it's a champion. Like, you can't just Take their fight you can't take their belt away if they don't want to fight right now because they're injured or because they need surgery. Okay, I think we have to respect the championship title. Otherwise people are going to look at interim championships like it doesn't mean anything. It should mean as much as a championship. Like we're saying you have to fight for the title next. So to say that they don't have to fight for the title next and we're just gonna take that thing away from you. You just take it away. Like but you're still fight the person's still fighting. So they're still the champion. They didn't lose. Mm. You just take it away because what? Is there a mandatory contender that the WBA or the WBC or the IBF? No. It's just the UFC. The UFC decides like who fights and who who fights when. I'm happy that they have interim, com, interim championships because I think there's times and places for that. But you've got to treat it like it's a championship. And Kobe never lost the championship. Yeah. He won that interim yeah. title against RDA in an incredible performance. And then they just take it away from him.
1: I, I don't think you need to – like the problem is sometimes you've got the champion defending their belt against another contender and there's an interim champion that's not available to fight, but that doesn't mean you have to strip the title from the interim champion. That's still, that's still, it's almost like a, it's not a placeholder. It's like a guarantee that they've got a title shot in their next fight. If they're not injured. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So what? 12 months like a normal, like a normal champion. I just think, you know, in this
0: day and age, like there's this, uh, attitude that the fighters need to step up and fight, even if they're injured. It's like, that's that is not good for anybody. That's no. not good for the ultimate, uh, the eventual fight itself, the ultimate product that you're selling the fans. It's definitely not good for the athletes. This is hard enough as it is. I yeah. think the solution to all this, and I'm a fucking, I'm beating on a dead horse, more weight classes.
1: I love more weight classes. More weight classes, the, more the, champions. And I, I keep saying this, well, there's no need to move the 170 weight class. We can't move that. There's too much history there. Whoa, you know? Look at you! You want to go crazy? You no, want to go 55, no.
0: 65, 70? No, no, no! I want to. I want
1: to go. I want to use the old pride weight class. So we do 55, oh. sixty-two. 62's right sixty-two is right in the middle. Well, who are you? Sixty-two, sixty-three. These that are weird numbers. I'm telling you, man. That's the weight class to make light welterweight. It's right in the middle of the two. Think of the fighters that we get in that weight class. Masvidal could have stopped off there on his way up. Cowboy RDA. We've got guys that could move down. I would say Covington, Mike Perry could probably make that weight class. And then you know the next weight class after that's 177. That's halfway between uh, the two Definitely weight classes. So,
0: you're talking madness. I'm you're not, making up I'm these not. crazy numbers. These bro. are
1: the, these are the weight classes. I'm <laughs> telling you. And then Gastelum <laughs> stops off there on the way yep. up. Like we were talking about Hadolfo Vieira, the, uh, the the guy that fought the weekend in Uruguay. Yes. I would say he's not big enough for middleweight, but I would say he's too big for welterweight. And I would say the same about his opponent, Oscar Well, he was light heavyweight in the beginning of his career. Yeah, but even if you stood him next to another middleweight, you would be surprised. Well, he was
0: interviewing Bisping. Mm -hmm. Bisping was interviewing him. I was like, wow, Bisping's quite a bit larger than him. Yeah. He's just filled with muscle. He's a tank. But, you know, so was Paul Harris, right? Yeah. He was pretty fucking effective with that style. Yeah, I I love the idea of more
1: weight classes. I think it's easier to sell fives. Mm Mm-hmm. I know, but you know we're not come idiots. On. I mean, come on, we can yeah. have we can have numbers that. I don't, <laughs> don't know about you. <laughs> Some people are idiots. Uh, um, I just I don't I, like I'm, the idea of moving welterweight. It would just be such a shame to lose that weight class. Oh, that's so silly. You know the usual. The it, in the early
0: days it was one ninety nine for light heavyweight. Yeah, remember those when uh-huh. Tito Ortiz first made his debut? It was one ninety
1: nine. Yeah. What was Pride? Was that one ninety? I don't remember. Because Dan Henderson was like either side of the line. Yeah, and he yeah. Both.
0: He won both, right?
1: Yeah. Dan Anderson, man. People
0: forgot what a fucking savage he was in Pride. Woo! What a monster. That dude took a shot better than anybody (laughs) that's ever lived. God damn. Here it goes. Okay, so middleweight was uh, 205 pounds. Welterweight was 183 pounds.
1: Interesting. Lightweight, 161. Hmm. Yeah. So those are close. That's interesting. I fought at 161. I fought at 160 twice. What do you walk around at right now? I'm light now. I'm like 82. Wow. Yeah, but when I like I was over, I, I, I always start a training camp over two hundred pounds when I was fighting a welterweight.
0: If you yeah. fought and you you would want to fight welterweight again, right? I I'd, I'd, I'd be
1: open. Yeah. Welterweight. I I could I could probably make lightweight if would I had you a bit want more to? time. So, yeah, I'd give it a go. I'd yeah. give it a go. How
0: much body fat do you think you would try to lose first? You would try to lose a lot of body fat first, and yeah. Then get down in the seventies.
1: Yeah. I could probably. I've then got about like probably six pounds I could lose without you know without it me looking unhealthy.
0: Do you eat clean?
1: Yes. Even though you know, like, well, not not this week. I'm not. Cause not I'm in week? California. <laughs> in and Out Burger. What do you eat? In and Out Burger last night. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm having a few. Like I'm. You know, I'm, I'm walking over old grand and having a good. You know, some memories because uh, I went to the 101 Cafe and had the oh, waffle brownies Sunday. Nice. We used to go there after the tie boxing yeah. fights and. So yeah, In and Out Burger. It is awesome. Old school. I love it. But yeah, generally yes, I do. Generally yes, I do. And and I I tend to eat. I tend to eat in a small window of time, so like sort of six or eight hours, and that tends to start later in the day because I'm on a weird sleep cycle because I'm, in, I'm living in the U.K. Most mm. of the fights, are, you know, the main card's starting at 3 a.m. on a Saturday. And, oh, my you God. Know, so, I, so I stay up to watch the fights, and sometimes then I'll work through into Sunday uh, doing like radio shows and that kind of Did thing. you stay so. awake? Yeah, pretty much. Damn. So then my whole week kind of kicks over. So I'm usually getting up at about noon and then starting, my, starting eating at about 6 or 7 in the, in the evening. And I eat for a few hours and then stop. Train late at night as well. Um, and why are you in town right now? Why are you in L.A.? Um, well, I'm, I'm here uh, for the fights predominantly. I've got my uh, my team in town, my, my YouTube guys, the Raptors. the, the two, Those gentlemen. They're gentlemen in the other they room. They surprised me. Yeah. I was like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, so we, we started a YouTube channel about three months ago and hit 20,000 subscribers recently, which oh, is awesome. Oh, beautiful. So what is it? You. Tell people. So uh, basically we're doing, uh, we've got a, a few different series. The one I'm working on at the moment is The War Room, which is my breakdowns of the fight. So I do Inside the Octagon for the UFC, but because mm-hmm. I only do the main events um, and the European cards, I get so many messages for the fight. So like for this week, everybody wanted a Diaz-Pettis breakdown and a, a, a Romero-Costa breakdown. So I've done both of them, and they're up. Um, and, and this is all you independently, correct? This is yes, all your own things. Is, That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Now, you, are you allowed to use footage? Yes, the UFC allowing me to use oh, footage on my channel, UFC. which is cool. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, thank thank you for that. You. I thank appreciate you. That's it. That's excellent. It's just, well, the why thing wouldn't is, they? It's, well, it's this, great. this is the thing. I mean, I'm a UFC ambassador in Europe, so like my job is to promote the UFC and promote the sport. I've just um, uh, I've just taken a job as the head of MMA for UFC gym in Europe, as in the, the UK as well. Oh, excellent! So we've got a load of gyms opening up, um, and my own gym obviously has opened up. And then, like the YouTube channel is really my main focus because it's my ability, it's my way to communicate. Directly to the fans because they're constantly asking for breakdowns so I can do that and the Raptors are now doing all the media stuff so they're creating vlogs and but I mean today I actually feel today I was saying this on the drive over because they wanted to come over and meet your big fans of the podcast and everything so uh, I brought brought them to your show in Vegas as well which they blew their mind Um, but they were supposed to be at media day today interviewing the fighters you know as part of their job this week so I said I feel like a like a parent taking them out of school for the day because <laughs> when we're done here, I'm gonna take them to the Mel's drive-through and then up up to Malibu and show them some some California.
0: Oh, give um, them the views. Yeah,
1: show them the tour. Yeah,
0: that's it, excellent, man. I think you do a fantastic job of breaking down fights. I, I always like your analysis of how things are gonna go. And uh, one of the one of the reasons why I was really excited about you being today is because this weekend. There's, a, there's, a, it's a great fight card. Like the A DC rematch is an amazing card, amazing fight for that card. I love the card in general, but the Paulo Costa Yoel Romero fight, that's the one that perplexes me. Mm. Like, how does that go down? What happens when these two fucking Brahma bulls smash heads in the middle of the octagon? First of all, it's all time best body fight ever right yes
1: oh for sure for absolutely sure. I how do mean, you it, they both look like they're chiseled out of rock it's they ridiculous. look like statues yeah. of gods both yeah. of them if you're going through options for bodies if you could choose <laughs> <you're> like <laughs> it's flip a coin
0: and these guys you <laughs> like, ain't getting robbed either way whether no. you're or romero might have an advantage because he, he's so freakish he's so freakishly built That I mean, you can't imagine someone having a better body. Yeah, you just have a different body. It's just look at the two of them there. Look at Yoel. Look at Yoel in right there when he's posing.
1: He doesn't even look real. Jesus Christ, he's such a tank, dude. (laughs) The thing, the difference in in this in this fight between the two is that I think well, we know Romero can fight for five rounds and he will take his time early, but Costa Mm -hmm. comes out. Throwing guns Straight he's away dangerous, like, He's dangerous man wild Straight Coast is very
0: Very very dangerous He's got outstanding Striking He's got real power And he's fast He's fast and powerful The th- the thing is though Is he as fast And powerful As Yoel And you know He's beaten Really good guys Like Uriah Hall But this is the Cream of the crop mm. I mean he's in there Against the motherfucker Of all motherfuckers <laughs> At 185 and you talk about A dude who just Can explode on you And send you Flying through the air Yeah he ragdolls people. He does pe- shit to people when he's wrestling them and you just go, what the fuck? He jumps at them with shots. When he knocked out Luke Rockhold with that left hand, you're like, what the fuck? And that shotgun to and the face. And then steps afterwards. in, boom! And then yeah. kisses him? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, man. That's he's as David Goggins would say, he stole souls.
1: Yeah. He stole his souls. He is a ridiculous athlete. He's um, ridiculous. My thought is that Paolo Costa's Undefeated mentality might play into play into Romero's hands a bit, because Costa's going to come crashing forward, and Romero will just take his time. Maybe, you know? and, and Costa has gassed. I mean, he gassed on the Ultimate Fighter. So if he fights hard for a couple of rounds, and Romero's, you know, still strong in the third, I think he's a different guy now.
0: I really do. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think Paulo Costa is at the top of the heap for a real reason now, and a lot of it is dedication. Walid Ishmael. Um, that you know, guy was a lunatic. I love that guy.
1: He's, he's got, training. He's awesome. He's, yeah, and he's I remember training the old Pride with days.
0: Paulo Costa. He's working with them and okay. he talked to me about him. And you know how crazy Eat is. He's just like, he measures his food. <laughs> that's what he kept saying. He measures his food. <laughs> like that dude has like everything portioned out. He's just like a hundred percent eyes on the prize. Mm. He goes, that's all he does is train. He goes, this guy doesn't party. He doesn't fuck around. He's just concentrating on measuring his food and training. So what about the money that Romero's come into recently? Does Crazy. that change his mentality at all? I, here's the thing, man. I don't know if it's real. I don't no? know if they're ever going to give him that money.
1: Really? Like a stare down, man. Whoa, Daddy! That's but that's the guy not to tangle with. Coo. Security, Steve Reed on the right hand. Oh side. yeah, Steve's
0: a bad motherfucker. Oh, he's Steve's not stories. playing games. he's, he's, got, some he's got
1: eyes. Yeah. look in the dude's eyes, like, who yeah. knows what the fuck is up? He saved a couple of shows in Europe that could have gone very could have gone south. Oh, I, I'm sure. I have a little story for you from the, the Gdansk show. So like, I'm standing on stage at the weigh-ins. I'm announcing the fighters as they come out. And um, we have a fight on the card. We have uh, a Polish fighter against uh, Anthony Hamilton. And I had the voice come through in my ear saying that that fight wasn't going to be walking. So just to drop it off the schedule, like, during the weigh-ins are going. And immediately I'm thinking that's kind of, kind of strange and I'm not sure whether, obviously, you know, some areas of Poland, there's a racial undertone. I wasn't sure whether it was because Anthony Hamilton was going to get some heat if he walked out on stage. The next thing, I've got quite a unique perspective because I can see down the two tunnels where the fans walk into the floor. And I saw this whole bunch of, like, skinheads with, like, bomber jackets and boots just come marching in. And they filled the floor space. And then they went all went and sat down in one of the blocks and just sat there waiting for him. And it was because he was from a rival football firm. Whoa. Yeah.
0: Oh, I'd heard about that. Yeah. That's right. I'd heard about that. And that's why they canceled the fight.
1: Yeah. They moved it over to Australia. Fuckin but, like, they came egg. around security. They came through the glass in the, at the arena just... <clears throat> And if it wasn't for Steve, that 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 whole thing would have gone south. Like he's the, yeah.
0: Dude, do you imagine if there was a fucking hooligan brawl in the middle of a UFC? Oh man, that'd be awful. Terrible for the sport. Yeah, that'd be yeah. terrible. No, Steve is a uh, he's a wise man. Stopping Sees everything. Out. How do you feel like Romero and Costa plays out? If you had a bank on it, if I gave you a hundred bucks, what you,
1: how do you, what do you see? How do you see this play out? I think Costa starts fast and I think he pushes Romero back up against the fence. Romero defends it, you know, covers and covers, throws a couple of shots to push Costa back. And then I think the second round comes and Costa comes crashing forward and Romero catches him with something, right hook over the top, something like that. The technique I'm watching out for for Costa, which is going to be useful for Romero, he throws a great body kick to left hook. And Romero's got this bad habit, and you can see it all the way through the Whitaker fights. Every time someone throws a kick, he does this like, over-dramatized scoop with his arm to like parry it out of the way. If he's parrying out of the way, that body kick is going to be wide open for the left hook. So that's something I'm watching out for with Costa. I just feel like his overconfidence, his willingness to take risks, and the fact that Romero's patient, can take his time, is never in a rush to get the knockout because he knows he can get it at any point in the fight. I feel like his patience might play off and Costa might might walk onto something.
0: Mm, Imagine if he KOs Costa and we play this over that. You look like a goddamn hero Yeah but what's most likely to
1: happen Is that it's going to be Completely (laughs) opposite And everyone's going to be like Why has he got a job With the UFC as an analyst Well
0: every now and then You're so wrong Like when Derek Lewis Fought Francis Ngannou I was like Holy shit Don't go for popcorn This is going to be Fucking chaos This is going to be Fucking chaos I was nervous before that fight started, I was like, holy shit, here we go. I'm like, Francis is going to be gunning for the title again. He's going to come out guns blazing. Derek Lewis goes to war every single goddamn time. They're both enormous. I'm like, fuck, here we go. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing, nothing,
1: nothing. But were you working with Cruz on that night? There was somebody else who you were working with, and they said the words that you never say during a heavyweight fight. As soon as it's about to start, they go, there's no way this is going the distance. Ooh, yeah, that's a rough thing to that say. kills it straight away. And I remember this, they, put like, that I was so excited. It. And they went, there's <laughs> no way this is going to the distance. I'm like, oh. Would you put that voodoo jicks. on me, Ricky
3: Bobby? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, no. That was, a, that was a rough one, man. But it's it's interesting how uh, Francis has bounced back. Francis is just nuking yeah. everybody now. It's just that mental hump yeah, that he, got he had stuck a, on, right? He had to go through that one fight. mm you know,
1: the, the thing is, sometimes we get these fighters coming into the UFC and, they've, you know, they're so talented that they, they're in the UFC fairly early in their career before they've had any real lessons, especially if they've just starched a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. Like they come in at, you know, 10 fights into their career and they've knocked everyone out in the first round. There's no real learning process there because they've not found anyone to challenge them. So then they get into the UFC and then we get to see them go through that process in the UFC. And I think that's what we've seen with Ingunn. You know, it took him getting to a world title for someone to really show him something in his game that made him feel vulnerable.
3: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: Then you know we've watched him go through that process. It, like in in the moment, it's really annoying because we want to see a mad fight. But in hindsight, you can kind of look at it and go, "Well, I appreciate that as part of his journey now." And you know, I understand where he was at.
0: You got to give Steep credit for taking fucking bombs in that fight. I mean, he took bombs mm-hmm. in that fight especially in that first round. I'm like, fuck. Francis is always in it when he's standing in front of you. When he's standing in front of you, he's always in it. Mm. But Stipe managed to just slide away from most of them. The ones he got hit with, he went with them, rolled with them. The ones he got hit
1: clean with, he just absorbed and kept going and ground him out. So here's a question for you then. Do you think you take punches better if you expect the person to punch hard? Probably. Because I would say that he took bigger punches from Engano in that fight than the, the than the punch from DC. And I would say he was probably more vulnerable to the punch from DC because he probably wasn't expecting DC to knock him out. Could be. Could be. Wouldn't expect to get caught like that in a clinch
0: either. Mm. It was a really perfect utilization of the clinch work combined with that crazy big overhand right. Yeah. I mean, he really set him up perfectly for that. And it was something that obviously was a part of his repertoire. It was not something that was just... Oh, it was just happened to be there for the moment. He's setting him up for that. Mm. And that that was just the perfect right hand. And he caught him when he was looking. I mean, he just didn't didn't know that punch was coming, clipped him, dropped him, put him away. The real question is what's it gonna be like now that he knows that D C can knock him out? I mean, is he gonna fight from the outside, try to land big shots? He's gonna avoid the clinch at any cost now. He's I think got a so. big height and reach advantage. Can he keep D C off of him? Yeah. And then also <sighs> When a fighter has had a lot of wars, like him with Junior Dos Santos, the first fight, there was a war, right? I mean, he's had some wars in his mm. career. Strew the fight. The Ingano fight. The Struve fight was a war. He got stopped in that fight. Yeah. You know, how many... The Mark Hunt fight, right? Mm. That was a war. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, He, he dominated that right. one from top position as well. And
0: it? even the Alistair Overeem fight. I mean, that first round was got chaos. Dropped. It was chaos until he wound up stopping him how many of those can a fighter have? How many of those can a fighter have before we see them start to fade in front of our eyes? And I'm not suggesting that we saw that with him because he was able to withstand the scariest fucking heavyweight striker in the sport. And I think the DC punch was
1: just a punch he didn't see and it was perfect. Yeah. And
0: it just put him away.
1: Yeah. I'd be surprised if it happens again. First round, I'd be surprised if it happens again because I think he's, he is going to be far more respectful of the fact that DC's got power now. For sure. I like think he, you're hundred percent right. And like you go back to his UFC debut and like he did fight long. Like he mm-hmm. used he used to use a real good long jab and yeah. a low kick and like recently he's he's kind of crowded his work a lot. He steps in very close with that right hand, which often you know offered the clinch to DC.
0: He's just KOing so many people that I yeah. think that he's like, fuck it, you know, I'm <laughs> just gonna get in there and just bombs away with these people. I mean he makes it exciting. It's I think he is the least appreciated, successful Heavyweight champion ever and I don't understand it. I don't understand it. He's got everything. He's a uh, You know, he's a firefighter an active-duty firefighter. He's a knockout fighter You I mean he knocked out for moving backwards with a perfectly placed right hand. He's a fucking animal I mean he fights super exciting. He's been smashing everybody. He stopped He won more heavyweight title fights than anyone in history he defended the title four fucking times. No one's been able to do that. That's how crazy that division is. Yeah, and still, does not get the respect he deserves. And he seems pissed off this
1: week as well. Good, like like in, in his interviews, he just fucking active duty firefighter
0: just, yeah. man. Guy's an animal.
1: Yeah, he and just he seems annoyed. I just I wonder whether that's going to play into the fight because I got the impression from him that he'd not watched the the previous fight. I got the impression that he'd not watched the first DC fight. Really? Yeah. So that see that concerns me because then the idea of of what happened in his head m- might be very different to what actually happened. Hmm. Well, God, do you really think they would let him not watch that? I don't know. That? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are some fighters that do. It just blows my mind. And the way he was talking in an interview is like like it's you know. And the other the thing, the thing that concerns me more is that he was talking about how he was winning that that first round. You know, he felt like he was controlling the fight. He was he did a lot of good things until DC caught him. So if he starts banking on that being, you know, just one of those punches that he got caught with, he might not, you know, give DC the credit for, you know, opening that vulnerability up.
0: Yeah, I think for sure he must have heard all the different people discuss tactics, though. It just doesn't make any sense to me that he insulates himself that well. Mm. And for sure, his coaches over at Strong Style—they've definitely. Oh, been, they've watched it for they've sure. Watched it. Yeah, they understand what to. So maybe he relies on his coaches and their guidance of him during training. And for sure, he knows that DC knocked him out. So what he's going to do is go in there and fight like he's trying to get it back. The, the question is, is he going to be able to use that long reach and that height and that power on the outside and keep DC the fuck away from him? Because he's got a considerable height and reach advantage. Can he stuff those takedowns? Can he keep DC from getting on top of him? Can you know? Yeah. If he can do all those things, he can get very interesting. Yeah. And if DC... You know, he's undefeated at heavyweight, man. I mean, I think that's really where he shines. You look at what he did to Josh Barnett, fucking throws him through the air like a ragdoll when he was in the strike force Grand Prix. Dude, he was a monster at heavyweight, you know, and the wrestling's unparalleled.
1: Yeah. So do we get Jones at heavyweight then?
0: I hope so. I do. I really do. I think he wants to do it at light heavyweight, though. I think he wants to prove a point. What, DC wants to do it at light heavyweight?
1: Yes. I don't think he wants to lose that weight again, does he? What I had heard was
0: that he wanted to fight at light heavyweight if he fights John for a third time. That's what I had heard. And I think I might have heard it from him. Oh. And he, but I would encourage, if I was in his camp, I'd say, fuck all this dieting, bro. Like, look at you. You know, when you have a belly, you fuck people up. You know, and he doesn't worry about food. He doesn't worry about cutting weight. He, and... He's fast for a heavyweight, much like Andy Ruiz. You know, I think there's a benefit in that. There's, I mean, obviously, people, there's people that knew that Andy Ruiz was a really talented boxer coming in, but there's other people that looked at his body and dismissed him. But when you see the efficiency of those punches, like, and the fact that he's able to uncork so many punches in close, Mm -hmm. whereas Anthony Joshua, with his giant arms and his long length, gets a little bit smothered by that closer distance closer distance and and he's just dropping bombs on him over the top and big power to him too man and yeah perfect perfect mechanics like so fluid everything's just smooth and fluid who fuck knows man maybe dc's the best heavyweight of all time
1: yeah well i mean quite possibly and there's something to be said for that physique as well there's an efficiency yes. that comes with that you know like you look at anthony joshua and yeah i mean he, he looks like a physical specimen but the drawbacks would be obvious over rounds whereas you know andy ruiz dc they can just yes. they just keep flowing and it, and it's you know those punches are more about the, the momentum you know mm-hmm. you, you need a certain amount of muscle mass to get the movement started and then you maintain it with good technique you know like an additional amount of muscle is not going to make up for a heavier punch really right and he's talked openly
0: about being far stronger in training as a heavyweight than he was as a light heavyweight mm-hmm. he just felt better yeah i think it's his weight class i really do I think is, you know, look, he beat the greatest of all time. I mean, the greatest on paper of all time, at least at least on paper. I feel like performance-wise, there was moments where Cain Velasquez was in his prime where I said, like, that's the motherfucker. That, to me, I mean, I know it doesn't play out on paper because he was injured multiple times out of a gang of surgeries, but when he was in his prime, man, he was terrifying. He just didn't stop. He didn't. St- he had welterweight Colby Covington style endurance as a fucking heavyweight. Yeah. man. He
1: didn't make any sense. And he's slightly bigger than DC ev- everywhere, isn't he? Like reach yeah. and height and everything. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you know, and he could fuck you up on the feet too. I mean, mm. he could do everything. He was so efficient and smooth, and just relentless. Relentless. Yeah. No one more relentless than Cain Velasquez in his prime. For him, it was almost like his body couldn't handle the strength of his brain. Mm. Like his mental toughness was so incredible, his body just couldn't keep up with it. His body just starts blowing things <laughs> up because his mind just pressed forward, go, go, go. You know, his and his cardio was just preposterous; didn't yeah. even make sense. Yeah, DC looks in good shape at the open workouts yesterday. Yeah.
1: I, I think he's expecting a harder fight this weekend.
0: You know uh, what? We really got robbed. What's that? That we never saw Fedor versus Kane in their prime. Oh man, we were robbed. Mm. We were really robbed. Cause who the fuck knows, man? A fight, that who be. the fuck knows? Maybe Fader would have caught him with an armbar. Who the fuck knows? Maybe Kane would have beat the shit out of him. Who the fuck knows? We will never know, man. We'll never know. And now they're both fighting, but it's too late. You know, it's like... Yeah. And they'll never it wouldn't meet. be authentic, it? Yeah. it wouldn't be
1: authentic now. Yeah. I'll never forget that suplex. Kevin Randall suplexing Fedor. And like his face just didn't even change.
0: Kane Velasquez is doing pro wrestling. And he looked good. He did a lot of wild shit. Like, it wasn't just like he would go out there and fuck around. He had, they had some serious choreographed shit. Like, he, he did some crazy flips and. Like, look, look at this. Cain Velasquez. This is a fucking heavyweight wrestler. <laughs> Tony Hinchcliffe right now is creaming in his pants. <laughs> like, yes, this is better than fighting. So, yes. does, so does that mean
1: that most of his injuries came from training camp then? Hey,
0: man, who knows? I think, uh, a lot of them must have come from fights, too. Mm. It's just the mind that he had that that fucking berserker mindset that just juggernaut mindset just yeah. brrrr. he would look he was dead behind the eyes, man, he just was coming forward like a fucking shark. <laughs> he would see him like when he was overwhelming Ben Rothwell. you'd see that look on their face like it's very similar to the look in the face you see of a lot of Khabib's victims.
1: Yeah. They're like motherfucker. Yeah. This is never gonna end. What kind of animal is this? Yes, yeah. there's
0: certain people where it's Deckers. never
1: gonna end. Ramon Decker's was another guy. I remember meeting him once, and he's same. Just like his eyes were just like. Jamie loves this move that
0: he did. Show that. Watch this. Here's the move. He jumps up, flips, and throws him on the back. So how can a guy with a bad back do this? Yeah, right. This seems like
2: it's called what? A hurricane rana. A
0: hurricane orana like hurricane that's
2: called? Some, i don't know exactly that's the, the name it, of the move yeah, yeah when you jump up and like oh. get your knees around their head and it's pretty flip wild Flip them over kind of thing. we're gonna yeah. see tony ferguson do that soon
0: <laughs> you know who's trying to like that darren crookshank go to darren crookshank's uh what is darren crookshank's he's over in rising now isn't he yes
1: yeah he's doing what, what doing is well. his uh instagram page oh i don't remember He's like the second coming of Don Fry. I love that, dude.
0: But he's practicing this really weird takedown defense the other day, and I was wondering if he's actually going to try to use it, where someone's diving on him, and he's drilling this, where someone's going in on a leg, and he's diving onto their back and rolling over the top of their back. He's going like back-to-back with them and then rolling over the front. And I was like, "Wow! Imagine if he pulls this off! Like you, I think nobody would expect that. I mean, yeah. maybe they would now that he's put it on fucking Instagram. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but look at that armbar that DJ did. Yes, you know, yes. I'm surprised we've not seen a few more people attempting I don't that. I Think anybody else can do it? Really. Here it is. Sushi this roll. is it. The sushi roll. Yeah. Watch. I
0: mean, he's drilling it like unsuccessfully sometimes. Watch this. <laughs> I mean, he's going over the top. He's crushing his. Pad he's doing it with a, a woman too. I wonder if that's his wife or something like that cuz he's uh he's being rough on her boom boom i wouldn't want this big asshole rolling <laughs> over my back i <laughs> don't hurt your lower back man oh there see the, now he's got it smooth see, this is interesting so it does kind of look like he's actually practicing this if he ever pulls that off in a fight that would be fucking crazy yeah but he's a really interesting fighter in that he's got a great blend of traditional martial arts wrestling and, like, uh, like he's got boxing style, but he also has karate style. Mm. Was it Kyokushin?
1: Was that what he started with? Because he's, he's got that, those hips that kind of come up at the side? I'm trying
0: to remember. I'm trying to remember what his original style was. But I know he has a wrestling base, too. Mm. But I think uh, it was some branch of karate. I don't remember if it was Kyokushin, though. No. One of them.
2: Yeah. Shotokan, Kyokushin. There's
0: a lot of good stuff in Spell those traditional it out? His
2: parents out. started with Taekwondo. So. Oh,
0: Taekwondo. Okay. Yeah, so that kind of martial art traditional martial arts style but with also like good boxing and shit and he's doing really well over in rising
1: mm, yeah i like that promotion i ordered some of the gloves but, but the other how week. do you watch it though you have to watch it online yeah i watch it online yeah because the good thing with rising is that usually it's starting when the usc's just finished so oh. like i'll have been up all night so the prelims will have started at 11 o'clock main cards at 3 a.m then right. by six I'm waiting on the press conference usually, but then Ryzen's starting, so oh. I just switch over to Ryzen.
0: Double espresso, no, stay it, awake. Keep going. Ride it out. Keep going. Did you uh, I mean that's where Crown Gracie started too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Very interesting seeing him in the UFC, isn't it? He is fascinating. He is a fascinating individual. Just you know, just to he's just got a, a unique energy about him, which you would expect from you know, from Hickson's son of course. Oh so, yeah. You know. Dude, he's lineage—they're on a different vibration. They are. I never forget choke. I used to watch that that all the time. The, incredible. The, the, the gnarly breathing that you used to yeah. do. The, yeah,
0: dude, that's like one of the most legendary martial arts documentaries of all time.
1: Yeah, do you remember? Um, do you remember the one uh, day of Zen, Mario Sperry? Yes, that was like I it, do. That, that was like it was it was a day. It was a day in the life of Mario Sperry, yeah. but he, de- he decided to put one of each of his training sessions from the whole week into the same day. <laughs> and they, there were like five different training sessions, and right. by the last two, he was just fucking exhausted. Like it was quite clear they tried to fit so much into that one day. Right, but that was fascinating, and he was using one of those vibrating platforms. Do you remember that? Does, was he really? It always stuck out in my mind. It was yeah. It was the one. It was like a vibrating platform, and he had a medicine ball on it, and he was like holding the medicine ball on this vibrating platform, oh. and then like changing positions, like scarf hold, and like I
0: wonder if that would really help you.
1: Yeah, yeah I don't know. And then uh, uh, Hickson had the the elastic around the head, didn't he? Do you remember that? Do you remember
0: when Mario Sperry started coaching over Black Zillions? No. Yeah, Mario like, Sperry like became like one of the head coaches at Black Zillions for a short period of time and put on these crazy motivational speeches where everybody got fired up. Really, it's like God damn, yeah, wow. and it didn't work out. I don't know why it didn't work out, but it was a really exciting development because uh, I know Rashad Evans was really excited about having him over there. And they were all—I mean, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, yeah—but I remember when Mario Sperry was like coaching the classes and like getting everybody fired up. I'm like, damn. Mm. I mean, he's old school yeah. man. He? Carlson That's Gracie? A, yep, Carlson yeah. Gracie legend. When I was a white belt, I was training at Carlson Gracie's in on Hawthorne, and Mario Sperry. When he would teach you a class, he would teach you a class, and you, I knew who he was. I had watched him fight on television. I, kn- I knew who he was. I mean, I, I was like, this is Mario fucking Sperry. Marilo Bustamante would be there, and um, Carlos Pajeto. Yep. Remember all these guys? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sergio Cohen was there. All these beasts from the Carlson Gracie hit squad. Mm. And um, the guy who teach you, and then after he teach you, we, we said thank you, and he's like, no, my friend, thank you for the pleasure of teaching you. Thank you. And he really meant it. Like, shake everybody's hand. The most gracious down-to-earth guy ever but it was hilarious he was talking about how he practiced his triangle on his girlfriend he's like uh he goes just repetition repetition boom 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 and my girlfriend's like no i don't want you to do it's like shut up (laughs) keep going keep going keep going (laughs) but he's like talking about like practicing on friends like get friends to like let you triangle them over and over again yeah this is when he had white hair at the time so this is ufc 220 he's training with vulcan ozdemir i wonder where he's at now Mm. Cause he was really good at it, man. He was really good at like, like hyping people up, and you know, obviously his jujitsu knowledge is top of the food chain. Yeah, he was in a bunch of the the corners in the early UFCs, mm-hmm. wasn't he? Was yeah. he in
1: like Vito's corner and that kind of thing? I don't
0: remember. I don't remember. But he's a, a true legend, yeah. you know. He's, there's a few of those guys, or something. Yeah. Well, it's one of those guys from the early days of uh martial arts that was a, a real jujitsu master. Mm. You know, I mean, he was a real master. Yeah, and they lived in the
1: gym as well back Mm -hmm. then. I mean, it was like everything about their life revolved around the gym. Yep. Like, yeah, trying to trying to find that kind of that kind of environment now. I mean, Danaher's, as we were talking about, Henzo Gracie's. I'd imagine that's got a very similar vibe, you know, in a basement in New York. Mm -hmm. Everyone's showing up every day and you know grinding, doing the same thing. But it's such a rare environment to find yourself in.
0: Do you remember when Mario Sperry got tapped out by that badass Russian dude?
1: He was the badass Russian dude. The
0: Russian dude was the same guy that Frank Shamrock KO'd with a slam. I'm
1: trying to remember. Amar Suluev? I think he opened up a
2: gym. Who? It Mario it looked like he opened up a couple of gyms called Hard Knocks 365. Oh, okay, that's, oh, that's Henry Hoof. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, so that's where Florida Florida he's at? Then. He's, he's with Florida. Henry with
0: them. Yeah. yeah, that's where he was originally, too. Um, Google uh, Frank Shamrock's mixed martial arts record. Because Frank Shamrock uh, slammed this dude and KO'd him. And this guy was famous for having beaten Mario Sperry mm. in um, the old school, what was it called, Battle Battlecade?
1: I don't remember. I Do remember Extreme Fighting. Extreme that Fighting, that's what it
0: was. Extreme Fighting Battlecade. That was where... Uh, John Peretti's organization. That was where Conan fought uh, Maurice Smith. So here it is. Go, where are we at here? Go back a little low. Hold on, stop, 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 stop. Igor Zinoviev. That's who it was. Igor Remember Igor yes. Zinoviev? He was yes. a beast. Yes. Dangerous yeah. guy. Well, Igor had cut Mario Sperry open. He had a big-ass gash in his forehead, and Mario wound up tapping. But mm. Igor Zinoviev was, uh, like, I think it was a Sambo guy. Yeah, I remember that guy. Tough motherfucker. Yeah.
1: There were some scary dudes that passed through the UFC a while back. I remember there were two that were uh, from the Red Devils. There was Andrei Semenov and Amar Suluev.
0: Whoa, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute, minute. He was Jeffrey Epstein. Igor Zinoviev was
1: Jeffrey Epstein's
0: security guard? No fucking way. That's right. Oh, my God. Look at his face. That's him. That's crazy, dude. That is crazy. Former MMA guy gives alarmingly cagey interview about working for Jeffrey Epstein. Click on that. We've got all this shit to look forward to. alarmingly cagey interview <laughs> who's who is this that's saying this mma dash guy oh it's deadspin, deadspin yeah. oh so um scroll down a little bit let me see what the fuck it has to say here so that's crazy that we're talking about this guy just randomly <coughs> wow said so one thing you told me for instance okay one thing you told me is he got a heads up when the authorities were going to come to his house the night before he said, And then he says, listen, what you say is between you and me. Okay. Let's, let's, fucking, let's leave this alone. <laughs> 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 but anyway, feel free to Google, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That's crazy. They were just bringing him up, and it turns out he was Jeffrey Epstein's security guard. That's crazy. He was a, a real veteran. I mean, that guy was uh, on the early, early days of the John Peretti promotion. Mm. He was a beast, man. Yeah, I remember
1: getting those video cassettes from yes. the uh, Virgin Mega Store in town. <laughs> UFC 2
0: and 3. Man, I remember when you first started fighting in the UFC. I remember those days. Yeah. It's crazy. It seems like it was a long time ago, but not really.
1: Like, it still seems like it makes sense. 89. I was in double figures. Wow. UFC 89. 89. And that's the only time I've ever been cut, believe it or not. Really? I've only, ever, I've only ever had five stitches. Yeah, if someone looks at you, you're a beautiful man. They would never oh, imagine you name. get hit in the face for a living. Single as well now. Whoa, look at that. Single and ready to <laughs> mingle with that beautiful face. Yeah, only ever had five stitches. That's incredible. Yeah, right. And that was that was the first, my, my USC debut. Akihiro Gona hit me with an open palm, and it was the seam on the inside of the glove. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, going back to the whole idea of like, people fighting bare knuckle, I've since amended my thoughts on it. Just yeah. too many cuts. Mm-hmm. I wa- because of, really because of Chris Lieben's last cut from Dakota Cochran. He had a giant gap. Have you seen
1: it? I don't think I have, no. Oof.
0: It's a rough one. Yeah.
1: I don't really watch the band to stuff too much. Go Chris Lieben's uh, Instagram page. I'm looking forward to it developing because I think it will. I have no problem with it. I think people should be allowed to do whatever they want, fight under whatever rules they want. But at the moment, it, it just it just looks like they're boxing with no gloves on. Yeah, as opposed to bare-knuckle boxing, which I think looks very different.
0: Mm. Is there any video at all of people bare-knuckle boxing from the olden days? Here you, looking, look, at really like look at that picture. Look at that picture.
1: Dude, that's horrific. Dude, I remember when he fought Michael Bisping. Do you remember, yeah. remember his face after that fight? Mm-hmm. He was sat next to me at the press conference yep. like a bus had hit him. Yeah. yeah. He's had some tough fights. Too tough for his own good. Anderson Silva's UFC debut. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I but remember, remember he, when he knocked out Vanderlei. Oh, yeah. 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 He he lured Vanderlei into a fucking war. And Terry Martin as well. Yep. That was a back and forth one. He
0: could KO you, man. And if you wanted to stand in front of Chris and you wanted to swing wild punches, he'd shut your fucking lights out. All day. And when he did that
1: to Vanderlei, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's like two different, two entirely different styles of fighting, though, isn't it? Like the Chris Lieben style of fighting, which we all love, and the Anderson Silva fighter style of yes. fighting, which is like witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
2: like I remember I was or cage side. style bender. Yeah,
1: I was cage side when he knocked out Tony Fricklin with that upward oh, elbow. yeah, you were there. You know, I was there. Ooh. And when he fought Lee Murray, I mean, people don't talk about that fight, mm-hmm. but like he just dismantled Lee Murray. Yeah, he did. And Murray was a, a talent that we lost early. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know. Made different decisions that led him down a different few <laughs> unfortunate
0: but, choices. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. But but yeah, he, he dismantled good. him in that fight. Yeah. What do you got here?
2: Sam, right? Uh, that's,
1: that's me. 89 That's me. Yeah, was that 20. was the card that he was on. But yeah, yeah. if you can find a photo of him in the press conference afterwards, he looked like the elephant man. Uh, oh, it was bad.
2: Pictures right here.
1: Oh, this is uh, yeah. This was yeah. UFC debut. It's the same this fight. Is, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Like Bisping just ate him teed up. off on him. Yeah yeah and that was still 15 minute uh, fights as well in main events so that was mm. only only a 15 minute fight.
0: yeah, isn't that interesting like the fight what do you think about the five round
1: main event? do you like that? Yeah, I don't mind it, even if it's not a championship fight. yeah, I don't mind it. I just it, it changes the sport. It changes the, the way that fighters approach the sport I think mm. it changes the, their output. Yep. like there are some fighters that will go, okay, you, you want 25 minutes, I'll just spread out my same workload over 25 instead of 15. Um, the thing I like about it is that it can be far more tactical. And the one thing that I enjoy about boxing is the fact that you can, you can implement a narrative in the first round that can play out in the later rounds and you can, you can allow it to breathe a bit because you've got 12 segments that are being scored separately. Mm. You can gamble a few yeah. and you can play that game. Whereas in MMA, you, you lose one round, you've got to win two, Yep. you know, yep. so the five rounds, you can lose one, you can even lose two if you're feeling very brave and then win the last three. hmm. So I, I don't mind it too much. I don't mind it too much. Yeah,
0: I think th- it, it definitely changes the way you fight, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if all boxing matches were like glory fights, like glory fights, three rounds for the non-title fights, and they're only three-minute rounds, those guys go to war. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's so exciting is because there's such a high output, and high volume, because they know there's only three rounds. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because tactics do get adjusted. Mm-hmm. You just have to start faster. You have to you know you have to do your first two rounds in the dressing room before you walk out. What do you think about Pettis versus Diaz this weekend? Dun dun dun. I honestly I think I and I, I, I took some stick for this on, on the YouTube but You took stick? I, stick stick. Is stick? that that's a Britishism, is it? Is that dick? Shit. I took it's you took a, you shit. Know, okay. Yeah. Stick sounds like dick. Like, does, no one says it? that. I took some dick. Yeah, I won't say that again. I'll adjust did my, you know what he uh, was saying? Vocabulary. I never heard that before.
0: I'm yeah. trying not to nitpick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. I'm still learning. Um, so uh, what did you think? I think Pettis has got the skills to beat Diaz everywhere. Really? Yes, I do. I, I think, he's, I think he's, a, he's a better striker all round. I think he's got a higher fight IQ, at least what he shows us. He makes better decisions than Diaz does. I think Diaz relies far too much on his toughness and his, and his ego and his ability to walk through stuff. And it worked sometimes. It worked against Michael Johnson. You know, he got his front leg battered in that fight and just kept marching him down and eventually forced him into a boxing match. And that could happen against Pettis. There's no doubt about it. My feeling is that Pettis has got the skills to start setting Diaz up because Diaz is very predictable. You know, you can kind of, you can make him walk the directions that you want. You can make him lean in the ways that you want to lean. If you've got the, the ability to, you know, to land the strikes that, ma- that matter, then, then you can put him out. And, you know, same thing with Costa having the body kick to the left hook. I feel like Pettis has got, um, well, he used it against uh, Tony Ferguson. He used it against Michael Chiesa. It's a, a right body kick to a straight right. And because Diaz is southpaw and he leans so heavy on that lead leg, blocking the body kick and eating the straight right might be something that Pettis is going to be looking for. But I just, I feel like Diaz is there to be hit. And I think he uses that to his advantage because he's kind of Homer Simpson's people. Like, you wear yourself out hitting me, and then I'll start to push my my game on you.
0: But when you think about him against talented strikers, like you brought up Michael Johnson who chopped at his leg, but he wound up beating him up, Mm -hmm. but the Conor McGregor fight, Conor is a very skillful striker, and Mm. in both fights, he wasn't really able to do much with Nate. He clipped him a couple times in the second fight and dropped him, and You know, there's speculation, like, did he drop because he got knocked down, or did he drop because he felt like it was a good enough punch to lay down and have Conor come and meet him and wrap him up and catch him in something, which he easily could, Mm. you know? you don't know. I mean, he, part of his strategy might have been to try to lure Conor yeah. into following him to
1: the ground. For sure. Vadum tried to do that against Mark Hunt a couple mm-hmm. of times. You know, he takes an overhand yes. and falls to the floor. Well, he did it to Fedor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like Conor caught him at least a couple yes. of times clean and, and rocked he him. He definitely
0: did. But he definitely did. But then Nate came back, and it was a really close fight at the end. A really close fight. An excellent fight. But Conor McGregor is a fucking skillful striker. And I don't know who would win Conor McGregor versus Pettis, but Conor McGregor has proven in the Dustin Poirier fight, in the Jose Aldo fight. He's proven in the Eddie Alvarez fight. He fucking shuts people's lights Mm -hmm. out. Was not able to do that to Nate Diaz. So I think, I mean, in my perspective, you might be underestimating Nate Diaz. I think Nate Diaz is a lot slicker than he appears, and he's harder to hit. He, he knows how to use his jab and his long left hand. He's not like the best kicker in the world, but he's never really had that as a part of his arsenal. But his ground game is super, super high
1: level. He's tough as shit. His
0: endurance is ridiculous.
1: Mm-hmm. What I'm I not it like at all it, underestimate any of that. One thing I mm-hmm. will say, though, is that the difference in the way that the, the fighters absorb punches is different. So mm-hmm. all the people that you mentioned that, knocked, that got knocked out by McGregor, they were all leaning heavy on their lead leg. So to me that is like hitting a punch bag that's hanging from the ceiling. Hitting Nate Diaz is like hitting a punch bag that's standing on the floor mm. because his weight is so spread over his base that when you hit him, you know that like those inflatable stand up punch bags. Mm. If you blast that thing in the top it just rocks away and comes back. Right. You know it's like it's like a reed in the wind. Like that's that's how he was able to absorb those shots from McGregor because as they were coming at him, he was already moving away, and he mm-hmm. was able to ride the power. And then McGregor was overextending, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, there's no doubt he's a durable individual. I'm just saying that he leans on that sometimes too much.
0: Yeah, it's also we've seen Pettis now at 45, 55, and now 70. It's really wild to see. And mm. you go by that Wonder Boy Thompson knockout. It's like man. Maybe this is his weight class. Look, if he can do that to Wonderboy, maybe this is his weight class. Maybe. I mean, maybe this guy's been just torturing himself, dehydrating himself, and not fighting like he's capable of because his body's always weakened. Like, his number one complaint was when he went down to 45. He was a dead man.
1: Yeah. You can tell.
0: He, he looked, looked terrible. His body just couldn't do it. So he goes back up to 55 and, like, discouraged. And then on this wild whim, takes his fight at 70 against Wonderboy and fucking Superman punches him in the mug and KOs him. Like seeing Wonderboy out cold for the first time in a UFC fight and seeing it happen because of Pettis. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he gets tagged again while he's out. He's totally stiff. You're like, wow. Yeah. He's definitely got power. There's like, no doubt about it. Tyron Woodley couldn't stop him. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has stopped Wonderboy, have they?
1: Mm, uh, no. No. Been no, dropped King's a still. few times, but right. not, not stopped. Miles Vidal wasn't
0: able to stop him.
1: Yeah. And then you know, maybe he underestimated. Maybe he wasn't expecting Pettis to have the power to knock him out. I, I, I'm starting to feel that's a thing. I'm starting Could. to feel like if you're expecting of the power, you're more you're more braced to you know what i mean sure you've got your shock absorbers on you're ready to ready to absorb that
0: it's a good argument it's but a really good like, argument the other thing
1: the other thing to keep in mind is that you know pettis at 170 is the same human that he was at 145 but without all the suffering mm-hmm. you know yeah. so it's it, it's it's finding that right amount of suffering and i think a little bit of suffering for a weight cut is 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 good i liked it, it i always thought about it i always likened it to the march to battle mm. you know like if i'm if i'm uh you know the Peloponnesian Wars, I'm picking my sword and shield up, I'm not stepping out of my house onto the battlefield. I'm stepping out and walking miles and miles. Mm. So that process, that was the that was the weight cut for me, you know, the the walk into the battlefield. And I enjoyed that. And I think that we saw McGregor at one seventy didn't have that. You see McGregor on the scales at one fifty five or one forty five and he is feral. Mm. Like he's wild. Yeah. You saw him on the scales at one seventy and he's smiling, he's rubbing his belly. He's not marched to the battlefield you know and i think there's something in that psychology as well I, I like it even if it's a small weight cut and i've done i've done everything from three pounds to 16 pounds I, and i know how i felt across the board how did you feel best about eight mm. eight was good for me because so well, you put
0: a little bit back on you feel strong and yeah. big for the weight class but you're not
1: depleted mm-hmm. like I, would, well, I mean usually i would be back up to like 184 186 when i was fighting at 170 mm. that was my that was my good weight around 184 was comfortable because then i didn't feel too bloated and too slow i've been up closer to 190 before and it just didn't suit the way that i fought. so there's a point of diminishing returns for, for sure yeah mm. and did you use ivs during those days one time i used an only IV. one time yeah never never really it, it was all for me it was always a it was quite an internal process because I, I always cut weight on my own and I always found it strange By that yourself? everybody else... Yeah, I always did. You
0: don't have anybody rubbing your shoulders? and no, say, saying sweet Scraping on me with a,
1: with a room card. Have you yeah, seen, that? Like, seen that? Yeah, I've seen that. It's like, oh, I'm not buying no, that. It was always a personal thing for me. Mm. So like, you know, running through the streets of Tokyo with trash bags on or... Oh, okay. Sitting in the corner of the sauna in my own head. Who's the most ridiculous weight cutter you ever saw for, uh, in terms of volume? Oh, man. Anthony Johnson, for sure. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Like when, no when contest. I, so when I fought him in, in Seattle, he cut weight th- uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night to weigh in on the Friday. And and I don't know for sure this, but I from what I understand, he was 214 on the night when he rehydrated. He looked like a different human being.
0: Oh my God. And he I remember. went from 170 to 214. Yeah.
1: It was ridiculous. He was massive. <laughs> and like my whole game plan, because this for me, the, and this was, this was a good lesson for me, because he punked me in this one. I put all my eggs wow. in one basket. That's a phrase that everyone understands, yes, right? Yes. So I thought if I can trash talk him into making him wait, I'll make sure that I can get him tired in the fight. And then I'll start to wear on him in the, in the later rounds with my footwork and my movement. Now I just come off a knockout loss to Carlos Condit and then I get called up and I've got Anthony Johnson who's never not knocked anybody out at welterweight. So immediately I'm thinking to myself well first of all somebody at the UFC hates me. (laughs) (laughs) And and second of all I've got to deal with this monster in some way. So I thought thought, it's going to be a rough fight. He's going to throw power at me. So if I can at least get him to throw and fatigue himself then my window of opportunity will come later in the fight. And the the um, original main event was Tito against Phil uh, Tito against Nagira, and Tito pulled out of the fight injured so they put Phil Davis in and immediately I got a message on Twitter from Anthony Johnson like DM on Twitter and he was like I can't believe they didn't bump us up to the main event uh, we need to steal the show we need to you know like and we we were friends we used to do sign-ins at uh, tap out with tap out and stuff all the time so we were going back and forth throughout training camp this is going to be great we're going to have a, a wild fight we're going to you know just kind of basically kind of psyching each other up for the fight Me coming off a knockout, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way he's not going to try and knock me out. Right, right. So I went into the fight with the full intention that I, I, we were just going to like, I was going to have to move around and cover and you know try and counter him until he got tired. Then I was going to take advantage of that. He hit me with a head kick like early on in the fight, and I blocked it. It didn't knock me out, knock me down. It knocked me over. It was just a heavy leg, just like being hit with a tree trunk, bang. I hit the deck. Then I think there was a scramble back to the feet, and then he took me down, and I dislocated my thumb on that first takedown. And you can see in the fight, I actually reach over it because I was in—I I had him in my guard. I reached over and put my thumb back in, Ooh. and that's, it's still crooked. It's still not, still not quite right. But then, like he just drowned me with wrestling, and I, I had just not. I'd not prepared for that. I put all my eggs in one basket. It was going to be a counter-striking match, and I was going to defend these strikes, and I didn't expect him to try and take me down at all.
0: Dude, I think that weight class, when, you, when he was cutting down from way above 200 to get to 170, I think it tired him so badly. We yeah. didn't see the real Anthony Johnson until he went up to light heavyweight, which is so crazy. Remember he missed weight at 85 and Vitor
1: beat him up? <laughs> is it 197 he weighed in, something, something like that? Something crazy like that. But, he, but I think his next fight after me was uh, uh, Andre Olofsky at heavyweight. Look at, look at what he looked like at 170.
0: Skeletor. Yeah. And then look at him at 230. Crazy. As a light heavyweight, he was the scariest. Because his power was fucking immense. But he's another guy. He fought at heavyweight in uh, the PFL and fucked up uh, Andre
1: Olovsky And now he's a million pounds. Now he's wow. so big. He's so big, man. You know, I saw him in the uh, in the lobby of the, um, the hotel in Stockholm after he fought Alexander Gustafsson. After he knocked Gustafsson out. Um, and I, I walked into the lobby of the hotel and he was there taking a few photos and stuff. And I walked up to him and I, and I said, I'm glad you didn't do that to me. And he shook my hand. And he went, I like you, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. Thank
0: God. Holy shit. He, when, he's an, a perfect example of a guy that when he wasn't de- depleting his body, we got to see what he could really do. Yeah. And, like, the Noguera fight. Oh, my
1: Jesus. Yeah. He he power. kept him on his feet with an uppercut. Yeah, that his power is
0: extraordinary. When he mm. knocked out Glover with one punch, yeah, you're like, God damn, this guy's extraordinary. But it was really interesting when I talked to him when he retired. He retired in the octagon. He said, I'm an athlete. He goes, I'm not a fighter. He goes, I don't like doing this. I'm just good at it. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Like, how crazy that... Probably the most dangerous knockout artist in the history of the light heavyweight division. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that. Yeah, I would say. Who the fuck's more dangerous than Anthony Rumble Johnson? Yeah. If he connects on you, the only person that absorbed it was DC. DC absorbed that yeah. head kick. Only DC absorbed well. a big right hand in the first fight that sent him scrambling.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ridiculous puncher, ridiculous, ridiculous power. Especially, ridiculous. He's, especially he's you know he's a comfortable weight for him. Dude, the Glover fight was
0: stunning. We never saw Glover mm-hmm. get knocked down, and then all of a sudden, boom, one punch, bank,
1: out cold. Yeah, do you remember the, uh, the, the 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 knockout that uh, I always remember is the Shane Carwin Gonzaga fight? Because mm-hmm. that was like a six inch punch. Oh yeah, And Gonzaga just folded on the spot.
0: Didn't he KO Jimmy Manoa too? Oh, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. He fucks everybody up. Yeah. Except DC. DC just had that number.
1: Takes those shots so well.
0: He takes those shots so well and his wrestling is so overwhelming.
1: Yeah. And in that fight, you know, he just wasn't like physically prepared to do that. And, twi- and it's that same game plan twice. Mm-hmm. Like it's uh, I I I've call, I'm calling it the grind cycle. You know yep. what I mean? He gets you, just, you get, you're trapped in that cycle. Yep. He puts you against the fence. He takes you down. He beats you up till gives you give his <laughs> back. Strangles yeah. you. You know it's 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 a it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's very very. It effective.
0: is. I'm so curious as to whether or not he's going to be able to do that again this weekend, or yeah. what he's going to be able to do this weekend with Stepe, and what what Stipe has for him, what he has what he has planned, and how he approaches the fight. Mm. You know, he's got to know that. This is it was hard to get this rematch. And DC's on his way out. DC's publicly saying this might be his last fight. He doesn't know. And then Dana White is saying, reluctantly, I'll I'll let you guys fight at light heavyweight if you fight John Jones the rematch. So they're still they're talking about another fight other than this fight,
1: which I hate. I never like that. Yeah. And he's what, a year past his past the date he said he was gonna retire as well, right? DC? I think he said it at forty, right? Did he say was, at forty? Yeah. So it's at yeah. the end of two thousand eighteen.
0: You know what though, when you keep bringing that cheddar
1: around, it's hard That's to it. say no to That's the it. cheddar, Yeah, that
0: cheese, I know. Hey, like I'm an old man money. and I'm talking, about,
1: I'm talking about getting back in there one more time. But you
0: seem yeah. to want it for, um, it seems to be more than just for money for you. It seems to be something you want to challenge yourself yeah. one more time. And And for people who don't know, your career was taken from you in a way that you feel like didn't medically make sense they they told you to stop fighting because explain the whole heart condition thing
1: um, well it was it was in the build it's the You're Mike Brown fight you part I wolf I am part wolf yes yeah. I won't tell you which part ah. um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was. It was in the build at the Mike Brown fight, at uh, the Mike Brown Matt Brown fight, and because it's California, they required a di- bunch of different tests, and uh, it just it showed up as an irregular heartbeat. It's like I have a second heart uh, heartbeat. So it's another bunch of cells in the heart that produce an electrical current, and it can confuse the heart, cause cardiac arrest. It can cause you know electrical issues with the heart. I'd never had any problems, never had any symptoms and side effects or anything like that. So basically what they told me is that if i wanted to continue fighting i had to have an ablation so they had to go into my heart and they had to burn the 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 cells that were producing the second uh, electrical Fuck current
0: that
1: i've never had anything wrong with me at all healthy i've pushed myself to whatever limits i think i've got and i'm you know i'm hoping to find some more but i push myself i know what yes. my heart's capable of and i just i've never doubted it i've never felt and like you were it known for having good down. cardio yeah I, I always push i always push the pace and so i it I just didn't want to have anything done. They said they literally said to me you can have it done and still fight on the same date. This was 5 weeks before the fight. Oh my god. So it just didn't have it have it so done, five
0: yeah. weeks. So how much recovery time?
1: Oh, practically none. They were, they, <gasps> so they go into, the, into the, the 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 carotid artery and the femoral artery and they go into the heart. But Lorenzo sent me out to California. <laughs> what? What are they going in there I with? I Some some cables these, and wires. These are and beam, bro. This like a the superhero car movie. <laughs> Goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. And then I end up being Iron Man. I mean, yeah, you might come out, out with powers? But Lorenzo sent me out to a, to Beverly Hills to a specialist out there to have have more checks done, um, and they couldn't find anything any any anomalies with my heart no like additional growth or anything like that so mm-hmm. i just said i'm not having anything done i went back to the uk and then I've, i was busy for a few years doing the commentary but i did go and see a specialist um a cardiac specialist for athletes and he put me through all the same tests and he points out what they'd seen and he said that it, it could have been accentuated because i was in i was weight cutting i was in training camp i was tired he said but ultimately there's, there's nothing in these records that show that you can't fight and you're not safe to fight so I have the paperwork now. So four months in, you started the testing pool, and I've just got my, I've just got the option to step back in there. I would like one more because I never felt like I showed what I'm fully capable of. What was when the last I was last time we sparred? Oh, I spar. I spar regularly. I drop in the gym because I've got I've got guys that are training for fights. So we've had Terry Brazier fighting recently. Adam Amersinger, um, Dean Truman fought recently. So I've been in there moving around with those guys. And you've um, never really gotten out of training, training. You've always trained martial arts yeah. this whole time, right? Yeah. And I, I've I've always stayed healthy. I never gained any. I actually lost weight after I stopped fighting because you know my my diet changed. I didn't feel the need to be constantly eating all the time. So I just I allowed my body just to f- kind of figure out where it wants to be naturally. 182, 184 is perfect for me. Um, So my plan is just to kind of get to about 85% condition and just sit there. And then, like, I mean, this weekend is a great example. If, like, you know, Pettis or Diaz fell out and there's no one else around, that's the kind of place I'll just throw my name in the hat and just to be available. Mm -hmm. And one of those fights will be perfect for me. Just, uh, you know, one of the veterans of the game, someone that's, like, not too concerned with the rankings or anything like that, Drop in there, have a great fight, and, and then step back out again, and so just is be able that to.
0: How you'd like to approach it? You want to immediately jump back in and fight someone with a big name?
1: Oh, for sure. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to. I, Cause I'm having one more fight. I want someone. Just one more. One That's more. it. I want someone that everyone knows. But if
0: you love it though,
1: well, yeah, I I know I will love it. But I feel very se- I feel very selfish thinking about fighting again anyway, because it's not what I've realized since I've been fighting is it's not just me coming out of retirement. It's like it's my whole family. Like oh. I was, I was there. I was there when Till got knocked out in London. I was there when Gunnar Nelson got knocked out in in Glasgow. Like I see the reactions of their family. I know what I put my family through, and because I've had time to kind of step back and like allow them some time to, you know, the the their hot souls aren't as calcified to, to the idea of me <laughs> fighting anymore. You know, yeah. So it's a serious conversation to have. But I mean, the reality is like, and and you know, the sport's very different now. Everything's changed like when I was fighting g s p the conversations I was having with the media was you know what we are and aren't allowed to do, you know what's legal, what's illegal, so it wasn't really about about what I was doing it was about I was basically being an ambassador for the sport while I was in training camp, so now it would it would be far more of a um an internal journey I'd be able to to really embrace it a lot more and focus on myself. Um, you know and now I've got you know my my camera guys I'd like to document the process I'd like to be able to speak quite candidly to the camera and just bank a load of stuff so after the fight I've got all this all this footage that I can put into something to kind of give some insight into the the, the mentality of the fighter and the ups and downs of training camp mm. because you know the days you show up to media day to the press conference and you're like you know you, you you're confident on the stage and you shit talking your opponent and you're smiling and stuff like you might get back to your dressing room and you might be exhausted, you might feel like shit. You might you might have been playing a game for a particular reason and there's a there's a good reason you're playing that game. And I think that a lot of those narratives go untold because the sport moves so quickly. And I think I might be able to give like a nice little insight into that. So, if
0: we are going to expect this, how much time do you think you need to fully prepare? Where
1: are you at right now? Uh I always work on percentages. I would say physically in con- I would say I'm about I don't know, about 58% condition. 58. That's yeah. an interesting number. Yeah. How'd you choose that? Well, because I've been working through a couple of injuries, so I've not been doing a lot of hands-on stuff. I've been doing a lot of training on my own. Um I'm starting to build up my my aerobic base again, but the one thing I've noticed is and like I'm I smoke most days. Like my conditioning like always is is good. Like I can just get out and run 10 miles. And feel comfortable with it, and that's never changed. So all I all I need to do is just kind of, just kind of test that the, the toughness in that condition now, mm. and push it, you know, to to the points where I feel uncomfortable. How old are you now? Thirty seven. Dun dun dun. But I, you know, I'm healthy. I've not, I, you know, I've I've not drank in twenty years. I've had a ibuprofen since two thousand nine. You know, I just I, d- I have nothing.
0: And you have been out of competition for how many years now? It's
1: been seven years now. Seven years. Yeah. bro. I told you I work in cycles. I work in cycles. You do. This is my, this this seven year cycle. Seven year cycle. Listen,
0: man, I hope you do it. I hope you fulfill your vision quest like Matthew Modine, in that movie. Thanks man. Just fucking do it. It It'll be beautiful to see. And, uh, we got to do this more often, man. It's fun. I really
1: enjoyed this. Thanks man. It's always good talking to you. It's just, you know, I live so far away now, and I'm in the UK.
0: Anytime you're here, anytime we're around, I bring a mobile thing. We'll figure it out on the road. Uh, okay, very yeah, cool. If you're ever at UFC events, okay. Thank you, brother. I really thank appreciate you. Man. Always good talking to you, Dan Hardy, ladies and gentlemen. Goodbye.